Here we go. Rob Zombie, ladies and gentlemen. How are you, sir? Good, good. Thanks for being here, man. I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, it's awesome. Uh, Three from Hell comes out tonight. Yes, finally. It's such a crazy leap that you've made. I mean, people know you as much now for your films as they do for your music. Yeah, pretty much. Especially, well, I've really noticed that when I'd be like in an elevator. Like, the music fans, I can pretty much spot them. You know, but like when some guy comes up to me in an elevator, it looks like he's a lawyer or something, which I, <laughs> I have to get to grips with that because I'm not, you know, I'm old. Every time a cop comes up to me, I'm like, what does this guy want? I'm like, oh, he's right. like a fan because he's 30 years younger than me. Um, but like, yeah, when normal people are like, oh, man, I'm so into this or that because, you yeah. know, I figure like, you know, heavy metal music is very specific, but everybody likes movies. Right. So you, you can, can never see spot a metal the fans. Fan. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I can pretty much spot them. What do you look for, metal fan? Like, what, <laughs> when you see him, like, what's coming your way? Well, it's changed, but now it's always a guy with a shaved head and a long goatee. Dude, that's very nobody similar has to hair MMA any- fans. Yeah, nobody has hair anymore. It's like I swear sometimes I'm on stage, the fans are like, what's with the long hair? That's funny. Yeah, right. That was rock and roll, it was synonymous. Yeah, it's like not not anymore. What made you make that leap into horror films? Well, I always wanted to make movies. That was always my main goal in life. Really? Before music? Well, it was... Well, let me back it up. I loved everything equally, but as a kid, it all seemed unattainable. So it was all fantasy. Like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go to Hollywood and make movies. Oh, yeah, I'm going to have a band. Like, no, you're not. You're just living in some crap town. You're going to do nothing is what it felt like. You grew up in Haverhill? Yeah. Yeah, I I grew up in in Newton. (laughs) Newton (laughs) Upper Falls. Yeah, it's so funny. I think when I was a kid and played ice hockey, we would play against Newton. I'm sure. I think we wrestled you guys. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Oh, God, wrestling, man. I hated having to wrestle. (laughs) It's fucking It's so exhausting. (laughs) It's the most exhausting. It's like like 30 seconds. I'm like, that was the worst 30 seconds of my life. Um, What was I saying? Uh, Oh, yeah. No, I mean, growing up, I mean, it's like you can have a crappy band in the garage with your friends, but it's not going to do a thing. And then we had a Super 8 camera, so we'd make crappy super eight movies but none of it seemed realistic i thought my life was going to be you know world's worst bike messenger in new york (laughs) city that seemed to be what i was destined for but then as the band started taking off and which seemed odd on its own and there was a chance to make music videos like fuck it i'm directing these music videos this will be film school for me and that's what it sort of became did you have this thing that a lot of people have when things start going well for them uh, you have sort of like imposter syndrome like you kind of you're like, is this, what the fuck? Are they going to find out? Oh, like, yeah, my I'm whole life is like, ah, fooled them again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think everybody feels like that. I think so, too. I mean, because I, I was always so, I was so shy, and af- I was so shy, I wouldn't even, like, want to talk to people on the phone when I was a kid, because that was too much. Yeah. That one day I realized, I just, this is how I realized it one day. Like, in, in high school, I didn't associate with anyone. Like, no one remembers me, because I was just invisible, but. Me and my friends were sort of like into punk rock, like in a place where like no one knew what that was. That was mm. just like. And then the day we graduated, we were at like hanging out around McDonald's, and the main asshole jock kid came up who would be the worst, your worst enemy. And he was suddenly like, hey man, I'm going to college. Where do you guys get like your cool clothes and stuff? <laughs> like, wait a minute. It was four years of torture from you and your douchebag friends. And now the day we graduate, you're like, hey, you guys were. So that's what I knew. Everyone's so fucking insecure. It doesn't yeah. matter. And then the next day I was like, I don't care anymore. Oh, that's crazy. I'm, I'm a different person. Yeah, it's hard to forgive those people. <laughs> you know, the people that fucked with you in high school. It's hard to let that go and realize, though, they just were probably tortured at home well you can't let it go because that's your motivation i'm always motivated by 
probably by anger and revenge and things of that nature. That's why when people want anti-bullying, I go, well, might be anti-success later on in life. (laughs) (laughs) Because, you know, people that get fucked with tend to make it yeah chris rock has a bit about that yeah it's true i mean certainly true for fighters almost all the best fighters in the ufc have some story where someone was fucking with them when they're young and they had to figure out how to fight yep what's the first thing we all do take karate lessons yeah (laughs) (laughs) well even chris rock's bit involves steve jobs and a lot of other people like do you not want microsoft like yeah no it's yeah super true it is super true and it's also it's interesting that you said that you were you had social anxiety so many people that become entertainers also had some form of social anxiety when they're young yeah i had to do this thing last no the night before last i was presenting this award to somebody at this event and you know i'm picturing oh the stage will be really big and high you know i can get up there it's super impersonal doesn't matter and i get there the stage is like lower than this desk and it's like all the tables with people eating dinner right there i'm like oh man this is a nightmare (laughs) <laughs> I can't do this. Yeah. You know, because you have to sort of be normal. I used to freak out when I had to talk to bank tellers. I used to like, you know, you're in the line. It doesn't make any sense, right? But the line of like, I'd have to deposit my check and I'd, I'd be in the line. I'm like, four more people and I got to talk. I Three totally know that feeling. It's so crazy. <laughs> I was like that about every, I was like that with my own, not my family that lived in the house, but like, an uncle came over, like, I can't deal with dealing. Talk about Uncle Bill. I'll yeah. be upstairs. Call me when he leaves. Yeah, and then it's crazy that a guy like you winds up singing in front of fucking thousands of people, playing guitar in front of thousands it, of people. I wish I could play guitar, uh, but I will sing in front of the people. Um, it doesn't bother me. It doesn't matter. Like, I'm mean, like, oh, all? it's a festival. It's 100,000 people. I'm like, who gives a crap? It's crazy. So but there's so two many people of- out there that want to say hi. I'm like, oh, that's weird. You know? Yeah, especially if they're right in front of you. Like uh, the one of the weirdest shows that any comic ever has to do is shows where there's a really tiny audience. Like at the comedy store at one o'clock in the morning, oh, and there's like five people. That's brutal. It's just so weird. It's like five hundred people, no problem. Yeah, five people. Ah, that's why starting like when when people are like, oh, do you ever want to go back and play clubs and more intimate setting? I'm like, no, no. <laughs> I want the shows to be bigger as Im- as impersonal as humanly possible. <laughs> Because I hated playing clubs and the people like right in front of you, like yeah, doing that. That's like, the best. Oh, you, yeah, I like you. Like I know we do kind of suck, but can't you just go with it? <laughs> you know, give me a break, man. You know, like, let us get our feet. I don't know. What, what kind of music did you guys play in the very beginning? Well, when I started, I was living in New York City. And um, when my first band, White Zombie, started, I was working at Pee-wee's Playhouse, actually. I was a production assistant for Pee-wee's Playhouse for the first season. Did you know Phil Hartman? No, I was a production assistant. I knew. But did you see him? I saw people around because it was Phil Hartman and it was Paul Rubens, obviously. And it Mm -hmm. was uh, William Marshall who played Blackula. He was the cartoon king at that point. And it was all these great people. Um, Larry Fishburne. It was Cowboy Curtis. That's right. That's right. I'm trying to think who else was there. Wow, I forgot he was on it. The only interaction I ever had with anybody uh, was Paul Rubens, and I was standing there, and he walked by, and he goes, where's the bathroom? I was like, it's right there. That's it? That was, <laughs> that was it. So, uh, I forgot what I was saying. Oh, but anyway, yeah. <laughs> uh, I was getting sidetracked. It's crazy that White Zombie was your first band, too. Yeah. And and what are the odds? It was weird, because we didn't play any covers, and we sort of, nobody really knew how to play when we started, and we sort of invented a sound based upon completely not knowing what you're doing really yeah 
because you, that's like any band, like the Ramones. It's like, well, we know these three chords, but we understand. They instinctively understand catchy pop songs, even though it doesn't make sense. Because when you try to learn a Ramones song, it doesn't make sense. Even though it seems like, oh, these are really simple songs. Because I've played them before because I've done this Ramones tribute thing. You're like, oh, verse, chorus. Wait, verse again, two choruses, then another. Like, They're so catchy, but the structure is so odd because you could tell they were just sort of inventing this thing they were doing. And that's how I felt with us. Because I, I had this weird idea like, let's never play conventional drum beats. Which is like saying, let's never make the song fun for anyone to listen to. <laughs> like I was, you know, I got over that. But, but it just, yeah, you just, uh, I don't know what I'm talking about. Did you take any classes in the early days or did you just? Well, I went to New York originally to go to Parsons School of Design for Fine Arts. But I got kicked out because my grades dropped too low because I went from Haverhill to New York. So I was like, I'm just hanging out at Danceteria all night. I'm not going to school. <laughs> because Danceteria was amazing because one night it would be, you know, Run DMC, like before anyone knew who they were. And then it would be like Nick Cave. Then it would be this. So I was like, I, was, I stayed there every night till 4 a.m. And then wow. would go to school and just, you know, fall asleep. <laughs> or fall asleep on the train ride home to New Jersey. Then try to get back so you never went to school like like for classical musical instruments or anything like no that? i never went i i can't learn anything i'm think i'm incapable i just have to do it and figure it out and do it wrong a thousand times i can't i just incapable even when i was a little kid if we got a game i was incapable of reading the directions we were just let's just make up our own rules <laughs> we got a spinner and these little guys let's just you know even though it's like three lines of directions to learn how to play the Happy Days game, we wouldn't bother. You're giving so many kids out there hope right now listening to this. They're like, that's me. I, yeah. I mean, if you can make it, you can be, you can be Rob Zombie. You can be an idiot and make it. <laughs> I, I mean, I remember when I got kicked out of school, I was sitting in New Jersey. I was probably 19, maybe 20. And I was just sitting there thinking, well, I did it. I'm a fucking loser. Because I had, you know, I was making like 100 bucks a week. I got kicked out of school and I was sitting there in this crappy ghetto neighborhood in Jersey City. And you're just like, what did I do to my life? And it worked out. Yeah, it worked out somehow. Isn't that crazy? It's just things just eventually get better. You keep yeah. going. You I don't know how. I guess I don't know how because it never, they would never seemed like it was going to. Like White Zombie was a band it seemed like everyone hated and no matter what we had to be literally the last band in new york city to get a record deal maybe that's why we got it They're like we are literally <laughs> out of bands we have to sign them but even when that happened there's always this weird thing and maybe you could relate we got a, offered a record deal with rca records now we're a band that hasn't got anything and i was like nah doesn't seem right i turned it down and then we got mca and i turned it down i was like i think we should wait hold out for geffen records now we have nothing there's people holding out for Geffen Records because they were the biggest at the time with no reason to be holding out. But we got signed to Geffen eventually. How did so. you have those kind of balls? Because that seems like you would... Well, I think it's balls mixed with stupidity <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> because I, I know I could be my own worst enemy because even when I signed to Geffen, you know, I come up with an album title. They're like, really? You're going to call it Les Exorcisto Devil Music Volume 1? Is this just to guarantee we don't get any good placement on the album in stores? I was like, I guess. And then they're like, well, we're going to hire, let's hire so-and-so to direct a video. Like naming, you know, he just did the naming some big, the White Snake video. I'm like, no, I'm going to do it. And they're like, oh, God. <laughs> <This> idiot. <laughs> but it all worked. 
<laughs> it's crazy though that you passed on two legitimate record companies. I would mean most kids when they're starting out are so you know you're like holy shit this is our chance. I didn't think they were good enough. Wow. Even though we weren't good enough for anything either. I don't know what that thought was. Well, maybe you just. Oh man, I'm not a believer in fate, but if kind of seems to fall into place for you. It, yeah, I don't know. It's like, I feel like my whole life is just like, I could have gotten hit by that car. I just didn't, <laughs> you know, because I just stopped one second short from actually stepping in front of the speeding car and made it. So you always wanted to make movies though. That was always something. That, that was, was always the, the thing I head. wanted to do for sure. But that seemed completely undoable because it was just like Hollywood and movies. I mean, it just, it feels so far far removed i mean living on the lower east side playing cbgb's like and being broke that seems doable like right you know and that actually what inspired me there is i would see so many bands i go well they suck i mean we at least better than they are you know that was (laughs) i guess the motivation i had but like movies just seem like no way that works for comics too that's one of the best thing richard jenny once said that about open mic nights that really bad comedians are great because they inspire people to try it yeah yeah yeah, I, I get it. I mean, because there's such a record. Like, I think I have, I have so many friends that are comics that I've always um, become good friends with over the years. And I think it's so similar. I can't imagine standing there trying to tell jokes that people aren't laughing, but I also can't imagine standing there playing songs that nobody wants to hear. And they're just looking at you like, oh, Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. It's kind of similar. Well, the thing is, I think it's probably even harder maybe with songs that nobody knows. Because people will listen to jokes because they make them laugh, but songs that That's no one true. knows and a band that no one knows, like, man, you got to figure out a way to rope these people in. Yeah, that's why I always figured, like, uh, I was always visually oriented. So I always made sure the band had to look a certain way and act a certain way, the way I wanted them to be, you know? So I thought at least there's that. At least you can go, this is awful, but look at these maniacs where you know everybody's hair is down to here and they're going crazy and no one else is going crazy in the club but they are at least it's you know an entertaining train wreck to watch (laughs) at least you know what kind of films did you like when you're growing up i mean when i was a kid i would literally just get the tv guide because we're talking like you know the early 70s and i would circle everything that i was going to watch for the week like i would plan it out it wasn't random I was like, okay, one o'clock, white heat's on. I'm going to watch that. Beneath the Planet of the Apes comes on at four. We're going to jump to that. Then, you know, we're going to take a break to watch Gilligan's Island. Then we're going to come back because Good and the Bad and the Ugly is on tonight because it's Clint Eastwood week. And I would just plan it out the whole week. And that's, I would just watch everything. Kids today will never understand TV guides. No. They'd never understand. And the ones that would come with the Sunday paper, you'd get the, the guide with the paper and you'd figure out what's, what's going to be on. It was you'd the greatest thing stuff. ever. We would look forward to what was going to be on TV. Remember as a kid, like, you knew Planet of the Apes was going to be on. Like, the whole neighborhood was on fire because yes. Planet of the Apes was going to be on. Now it's like, oh, whatever, it's on my phone right now. It's always you there. Know. Yeah. But I think there's something, I, I don't you think, and I don't know how this figures into comedy, but I'm sure it does. There was something about having to be exposed to everything because there was nothing else that I know as much about John Wayne movies as I do about horror movies. Right, you didn't get to choose. Whereas now everything's so compartmentalized that mm. people just like, 
you guess like if you hear a band, you go, let me guess what your favorite band is. The band you sound exactly like because you have no other influences. Right. As opposed to a lot of metal bands I know that are huge, they go, well, my favorite band was actually ZZ Top. So we just decided to play ZZ Top riffs really fast. And that's how we created this. But now everybody's just so like, I only like this. Yeah. The, you get in those, those confirmation bubbles where everybody else likes what you like and yeah. you, you just – operate in the same circles and yeah yeah you can get real weird that way where it's weird like you just it, but if you're taking influences from or stealing things from everywhere yeah you can put them together in a new way but if you're like i only like metal well, yes you sound like metal Well, that's the cool thing about the radio right that i mean I've, I've been recently listening to spotify which i never listened before but listen to streaming services so i, I yeah. get exposed to you know there's like a channel like there'll be a rob zombie channel and there'll be a bunch of other shit on it as well like you know like there's a zeppelin channel and yeah. you hear some weird music that you you didn't expect from some bands you didn't even know of and i, re I miss that from radio yeah i mean i just want to because you want you want that moment of like oh whoa, what's this yeah yeah wow that's fucking cool i'm gonna listen to that i didn't know what it was five minutes ago yeah you know and now i mean because even as a kid i mean i hate talking like this but i can't help it um it's like you know like just <laughs> fm radio is like okay the allman brothers then diana ross then kiss then abba i'll just listen to all of it because it's yeah. on the radio right right you know yeah, I remember uh, growing up in Boston. Remember WBCN? Oh yeah, sure, totally. right? Yeah, um, they played one time. I forget who it was. It might have been Mark Parento. I forget who it was. Who was the DJ? Oh, I know. Was heard that saying, in a long time. <laughs> yeah, right. Was saying um, that this look. This is not. Might have been actually. It might have been Coz. It might not have been BCN. Anyway, whoever the DJ was, it was a rock station, mm -hmm. and they were like, "Look, this isn't rock." But it's fucking good. They didn't say fucking good. It's really good. <laughs> and that's what we're playing. And they played Michael Jackson. And I remember thinking, wow, this is so crazy. They're going to play a Michael Jackson song. But it was really good. Yeah. And so you're like, okay, I'll take it. You know? Yeah, I still re it's funny I remember that because I still remember them one morning brushing my teeth and they're like, oh, we're playing this new band, The Police, his song Roxanne. Right. And I thought it was like this you oh, know, by black the way, reggae band until I saw a picture of him. Rest in peace, Rick Ocasek. I know, right? Lost him today. Rick Ocasek from that the was, Cars. That's a bummer. That was a bummer. Those guys are so... The Cars is one of those bands where whenever you don't know what to listen to, you can always listen to the Cars. Because sure. there's so many good songs and it's so good. He, yeah, he was such an interesting guy too. Such a an oddity. You yeah. Know? Tall and lanky <laughs> with the sunglasses and on. And the supermodel and every yeah. song's awesome. Yeah, they were yeah, weird. Yeah, man. He was, <laughs> he was brilliant. That's a bummer, man. That's a bummer. And he was cool too because I remember when he, he um, produced the Bad Brains record rock for light and i was like rick okasic he's hipper than i thought he just did. yeah <laughs> it's yeah. cool um so like music movies wise movie wise like when you were a kid were you in horror films back then i was into everything but i, I love that for sure but i like I don't even know if we I, we definitely didn't call them horror movies. We thought everything everything was a monster movie. Like, oh man, check right, out this monster right. movie. Like that's just what we'd call yeah. it because it was always like you know we we had creature double feature on channel fifty six. Do you remember that? Sure. Yeah, well, yeah. that was like the every weekend. It's like oh fuck, it's destroy all monsters creature. and you know whatever. Son creature of double Kong. feature. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> on channel fifty six. Yeah. <laughs> so that was yeah. So big time that ruled our world. So watching them back then, that's when you got the idea. Well, it got the idea that I loved it and I wanted to do it, but it was always, it was the idea like, yeah, I want to be an astronaut too. Like it didn't seem like an idea that was ever going to happen. It right, seemed, it was just something that you were really into. Yeah, and it's really funny too, this funny weird things because one time in high school, 
me and my friends filmed a sequel to Escape from New York, the John Carpenter film. I don't know, get nothing better to do. And then to be like, you know, however many, 20 years later that I remade a John Carpenter film, Halloween, was just so bizarre. I guess I've been thinking about it for a long time. But, you know. That is kind of crazy. It's weird, yeah. It's weird shit like that. What, when, when your first actual film film was what, like 2004? 2000. 2000? Yeah, because the way it went down was, this is a funny story too. I made my first movie, House of a Thousand Corpses, at Universal Studios. And it was... 2000, it could have been even the tail end of 1999. I'm not sure. The only reason I know it's 2000, I had a rap gift somebody gave me and they put a date in. I was like, oh shit, it was 2000. So I made the movie with Universal Studios. And once they screened it, we had our test screening, which I thought went, I thought went great. What do I know? The, the uh, head of Universal at the time came up to me and was like, we have to talk tomorrow. I was like, <laughs> oh man, that was not a good tone. That wasn't a, you're so great. We want to give you a five picture deal tone of voice. So the next day they dumped the movie and, you know, just basically booted us out. And then- What was the conversation? They were like, we, basically this is unreleasable. (laughs) (laughs) I don't remember word for word, but that was the conversation in a nutshell. But at the time too, you figure there was no horror coming out of Universal. They were making like the Flintstones movie and that was not the image they wanted. This really vile sort of, backwoods hillbilly murder fest where there's the bad people win essentially i mean horror films were sort of like not even a commercial thing at that point in a way so then um which is funny now if you go to universal studios hollywood or orlando there's a huge house of a thousand corpses thing event going on in both theme parks that's hilarious i was there for the grand opening like that's funny. Again, <laughs> like it's like a train. It's like I get fired from here and now, you know, 20 years later, it's a theme park attraction in the exact place I got fired from. Wow. Which is so weird. What was the conversation like before you decided to do that film? I mean, how did how did they let you do it? I don't, it, you know, I, again, I think getting to make a movie for Universal Studios was such an amazing experience, but I think I was too naive to understand what was happening. It'd be like you did one set of comics. It was like, hey, we're going to put you on tour with George Carr. And you're like, cool. I guess this is the way it happens, man. You know? <laughs> and then it's after like, wow, well, I didn't really appreciate it. just went down, did I? Not that I was, took it for granted, but I, I, had, I had met with someone at the theme park about doing a, a haunted maze during their horror, Halloween Horror Nights based on my album. And then sort of by being in the offices was meeting, meeting people and having just meetings about stuff or I just didn't want to leave once I got in the studio. I just loved being there even though I had no business being there. And somehow I remember being in the guy at the time, his name was Kevin Misher, his office, pitching him a movie I didn't have a pitch for. I had a title, but no, nothing else. And somehow it progressed from there. I was like, really? I told them kind of a cool title with a completely half-ass idea that I was making up as I was talking to him. <laughs> what did you say? Like, how, what was the? I don't even remember. I w- it was weird. I don't even. I I can't. Rem- I wish I could remember it well because it it after the fact. I'm like, how did this happen? I don't remember. This is like your story is like the anti-ambition story. It's like the <laughs> anti-preparation story, but exactly. super successful nonetheless. It's, yeah, I guess the the goal is just be vague with people. <laughs> <laughs> be vague and look cool. <laughs> and act like you don't care. And I had that attitude too. I remember once the movie was rolling, I was like, 
this is who I want to cast, and this is exactly what I want to do. And if you guys don't want to do it, that's cool. Let's just not work together. And they did it. Wow. Like, that's well, <laughs> great pitch on my part, right? And I, we shot it on the Universal backlot. We were, like, right there, like, doing the whole thing and big production, and it was weird. Wow. When, when it wrapped, like, final day, final scene, and that's a wrap. Were you like, what the fuck just happened? <laughs> well, the funny thing is, like, after we wrapped the first time, we had a little test screening within the studio, like friends. And like, oh, we, could, we should probably punch up the ending. So they gave me, like, they gave me more money to reshoot the ending than I actually made my newest movie with. It was like money was nothing. Like, you know, they're just throwing money around. Like, it was like nothing. I was like, oh, my God, this is insane. We were building these giant sets, doing all this crazy stuff. It was after that that, you know problem started but um <laughs> i don't I, I wish i could remember these things better it's weird that i don't but what <laughs> attracted you to this ultra violent psychopath like uh, outcast murderous style of movie that you do because you have like these almost like mutant society psycho murder people that i don't people, know but people fucking love it man they i've always dug like outsider mentality like anything that involved like out i think it started as a kid as a kid because like a lot of people can relate to this i didn't feel like i fit in like i was like weird i didn't fit in i didn't get like what were the cool shoes to wear or the right freaking eyes on shirt i didn't understand i wasn't trying to be you know no one's trying to be weird and I'm like oh yeah i want to be weird and hide away because i'm weird no it's like i don't understand and i think when i would watch monster movies the monster was always that mentality like king kong's like hey man i'm just trying to get along why is everyone shooting at me and frankenstein's <laughs> like hey i was just born yesterday why are you trying to kill me like and i think as a weird kid you relate to the monster so as life went on and you know the i would always relate to the outsider then i would always relate to movies like taxi driver bonnie and clyde and I'd be like yeah travis bickle you know he's he's the fucking man you know and i would always be like anything anti-society anything fuck you fuck everything that's normal Right, like revenge. Yeah. <clears throat> I was yeah. just into it. And I, I felt real similar when I was a kid. I was always into monster movies. I yeah. was always into something that just just tore all the normal people apart and just ripped apart all the yeah. preconceived notions of what everybody thought was going to happen. And then around the, and towards the end of high school when I discovered punk rock and you were figure out there's an entire form of music where they're just like go fuck yourself yeah that's what we're here i was like i'm in <laughs> <laughs> and so many other people as well yeah, yeah. and it's just like it just you, it flips your whole idea of what life is and then when i moved to new york i was like wow this is an entire city of people who don't give a fuck <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's where they come yeah nobody gives a shit about anything here it's it's amazing how your movies resonate with people <clears throat> like to um, like in a fanatical way like the, you read the comments on just the trailer for uh, three from hell you know just people are so fucking pumped yeah it's it's great and i mean it's been a, it's been a long journey because like when my first movie came out i think every review basically said something along the lines of worst movie ever made i hate this movie and now people are like, dude, let, that's your best movie. You know, like you've been chasing it ever since. So it's just weird how, same with White Zombie. When our first Geffen, I still remember this. Our first Geffen record came out. I saw the first review. It was this magazine, Alternative Press, 
who two years ago gave me this Lifetime Achievement Award, and I had to read the review while I accepted the award. The review said, this is the worst band ever. <laughs> I was like, ever? <laughs> Come on. And it, it said, this is the worst band ever. Ignore this band. Mm. So there was a, something, a, you know, there must have been something. Did you ever contact the person who wrote that? No, I didn't. I, back then, I was just like... I mean, weird. like I felt like maybe a few years later, once you were really successful. <laughs> I can't remember who it was. I I used to be upset by reviews until I saw who wrote them. Mm, yeah, you know, yeah, that's and a problem. Go, that guy, I don't know, I a lot of critics are critics because they really wanted to be writers. They just don't have a lot to contribute, and so they just shit on things. And it's just like you, as a when you're young and you're new and you're reading it, you think that the guy who's writing it, writing it all badass. You'll think, oh, this dude must look like Lemmy. He must be this hard-ass guy. And, oh. yep. and then you see a guy like, that guy wrote it? Oh, fuck him. <laughs> and fuck everyone else who ever writes anything again. I don't give a shit. <laughs> yeah, but the thing is about music is it's so subjective. And, you know, someone who grew up wearing the right eyes, odd shirts, hanging with the cool crowd, they're not going to, It's your music's not going to resonate with them the same no. way it's going to be with other people that felt like they were outsiders. I mean, uh, I can only do what I do and... I don't know what would be popular. Right. I don't understand popular culture in a way because when people are like gushing over something, a movie or something, I see it, I go, I hated that movie. <laughs> I know it made $500 million and it's everyone's favorite movie. I go, I could barely sit through it. Yeah, and there's a lot of those being made. Same with music. Like I'd be like, oh, I love the Velvet Underground. Everyone's like, but what about? And they'll name something like, you know, I don't want right. to bash anybody, but something so popular. Like, I go, that makes me want to kill myself when I hear that. <laughs> Literally, it's sickening. Do you like any films today? Is there anything that you oh yeah, watch I'll see stuff all the time. And I, you know, I mean, what kind of shit do you enjoy? I watch every everything. I mean, I, whenever there's something that's more like um, smaller movies, I really like. Like I was just thinking about the other day about this time in the '90s where like you got movies like Napoleon Dynamite and American yes. Splendor, which I thought you ever see that? With yes, Paul? I thought. Th Paul Giamatti as Harvey yes. P. Carr. This is like the greatest movie ever made. It's and a Ghost great movie. World, those early Terry Zweigoff films, I was like, that's where I kind of my head was at. Just weird movies like that. Yeah. It's, um, it, look, Napoleon Dynamite to this day is one of the greatest comedies of all time. As soon as that movie started and the credits were food, I was like, this is like the greatest thing I've <laughs> seen in a theater in like 20 years. What is going on here? Well, it's a, I just don't understand why they never made a second one. I don't know. That didn't make any sense to me. I'm like, this is a fucking franchise waiting to happen. Like him and the the, the other dude, the who's the guy who played his was his uncle, Uncle Rico. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> fucking guy was amazing. I know. They, they they were so like over the top, but believable. Like everything yeah. about it. When he's feeding Tina. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Tina. It just doesn't seem. I just it doesn't seem like it could miss. I love that movie. Yeah. Well. I could see them doing it now. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> 50 then years later. They try to do that with Dumb and Dumber, remember? They, yeah. they did it way, way, way too late. And yeah, like, that's Jim Carrey's like 50, and everybody's like, this is just weird. You're not young anymore. You yeah. Can't, you can't be a buffoon. That's uh, hard lightning in a bottle to recreate yeah. Dumb and Dumber. <laughs> yeah. Right, right, right. It's like Step Brothers. There's certain movies that just. Right. You got to kind of leave them alone. I remember seeing Step Brothers, and I was like, is it my imagination or is every single fucking thing in this movie hilarious? Well, those two Which guys like, together <laughs> seem like they can't miss. Is you know, in yeah. Talladega Nights, they were yeah, fucking just, amazing in Talladega Nights. I love when a comedy's made well. Yeah. Because so often they're not. Yeah. You know, that's what I liked about The Hangover. 
if you turn the sound off and you just looked at it, it's a really good looking, well made yeah. film. And then you turn on the sound, and you realize it's hilarious. But so many comedies are just so sh- shitty. What's that new made. Seth Rogen produced film with kids? The Good Boys. Yes. Oh yeah, I didn't see that. So, yet. My fucking wife said it was amazing. She said it was like like piss your pants laugh. Oh really? Yeah. Oh that's good. To I got. I need to go see it. You never. You didn't like, see it. <clears throat> I like the. It was like a live action like South Park. That's a good way to describe. Did it. Did you see it? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, I watched you, it. A you liked it? Ago. Yeah, yeah. Because it's R rated. Yeah. yeah that, Seth Rogen can't mess. He's great. He's hilarious. Now, when you were a kid, like you liked all kinds of stuff, but did you think if you wanted to make films that you would be making the kind of films that you're making now? These like butchers? Well, I guess since the first thing I made was that and I, I was into it. I mean, I liked because what happened too was when I moved to Manhattan in like 1982 or something. I discovered when when New York City was all second-run theaters and double features, so I could finally see the laundry list of films I'd never been able to see. I remember the first time I – like 8th Street Playhouse was a good example where the first time I saw Texas Chainsaw Massacre was on a double bill with Jimmy Plays Berkeley, the Jimi Hendrix movie. I don't oh, know why wow. that was the double bill, but – um, I forgot about double bills. Yeah, and I would go see like, oh my god, Ilsa Shewolf of the SS is playing with Faster Pussycat. And, oh my god, this is, and I could because I could never see him because there was no VHS <clears throat> yet, or or it was so new that those movies weren't around. That I just had books and I was just staring at books because back in the day, you know, it's kind because with the uh, this new movie Three from Hell, you know, it's playing on about a thousand screens, so it's not like everywhere. Like you can't walk two feet and it's on five screens. And people are like, fuck, man, it's like fifteen minute drive from my house. I was like, <laughs> I would literally drive for five hours as a kid if there was a movie I wanted to see. It didn't matter. I'd ride my. So one time I rode before I could drive. I rode my bike for like three hours to see Night of the Living Dead at a midnight screening because I'm like, I'm gonna see this no matter what. Because if you didn't see it, it was just gonna evaporate. That's one of the things I love about people from Canada. Canada, they, <laughs> they drive everywhere. Like yeah. I, have, I have friends in Alberta, they'll drive seven hours to go see something. Yeah, because that's what you have to do. You yeah, get up in just, the morning and that's your day. You're driving somewhere. And and when I was younger, that was like part of the fun. I didn't care. It's yeah, like, it's an adventure. So the concert's thirty hours away. So yeah. <laughs> um, did you study? Have you or have you watched a lot of like really old horror? Yeah, I mean, I watch. Sometimes I feel like I, I'm searching for things to watch because. I try to watch literally everything, and I want to own everything. So I have like a vault at home that has, you know, 20,000 movies in it. Mm. Because I never – if somebody mentions something and I don't know what it is, I'm like, oh, fuck. And I like write it down and I immediately have to go like investigate it. So when I, you say a vault, you like an actual vault? Like a bank no, vault? It's, no, no, I just – I call it a vault. It's just a room that I built that just is nothing but like a movie library because I want to own everything. So you have a physical copy of all these. Yeah. What, what format do you put them in? Well, now they're DVD. I mean they were Laserdisc and VHS right. and then I started trading them out because what happens now, it's great that everything's digital. But if you go to iTunes, 99% of the things I want to see aren't there. Mm. because they're not, you know, so you can do that thing now that was nice on Amazon where you can, they will burn the movie on CD to own because it'll be like weird movies. Like I was spent forever trying to find, I mean, I got it many years ago, but like there was this movie called Dirty Little Billy with Michael J. Pollard as Billy the Kid. And I was like, where do I see this? Like Dirty Little Billy. Yeah, it's this amazing movie from the 70s. And um, finally, you can get it. Like they'll, you know, they or, it's made to order CDs. I mean, uh, DVDs on Amazon and stuff. So, 
Um, when I was a kid, I was g- gigantically into horror films, and uh, I used to read Fangoria oh, all yeah. the time. And I remember they were getting into these, there were slasher movies from like, I guess like the 60s that I'd never heard of that were like ultra gore fest movies. Yeah. Um, I, God, I'm trying to remember who was the director, but there was a guy who was famous for Probably these, Herschel Gordon Lewis, is that what you're thinking I of? Think like that 2000 is, Maniacs and Blood Feast and yes, stuff like that? Yeah. Yes. Like that stuff, I never was exposed to that. I've still to this day, I've never seen one of those films, but the magazines were covered with like people with axes and yeah, I mean, because things would play it at the drive in and then go away. Yeah, you know, that was like that's how I felt when the first time, um, when I loved when 42nd Street New York was the real 42nd Street, right? And I remember it was so funny. Me and my friend, my roommate back then, we'd always go to 42nd Street to see movies could be like cannibal holocaust i would just see the poster what the fuck is cannibal holocaust <laughs> and you go see this italian cannibal movie go this is literally the most i cannot believe another human made this movie right and it blows your mind but I, I remember every time i went to 42nd street i saw a really bad incident happen like you could not go there like we'd be like waiting in line and like oh let's go get some french fries before the movie two guys would start fighting at mcdonald's one guy would just pummel the other guy it'd be blood everywhere I'd go it happened next time we go we'd see a guy stab another guy in the theater while watching there it is it, like literally i never went there once and even right till I, I was recording my album before i moved i remember walking to the studio which was like maybe 43rd and there was a dead body lying there and they had just found him and they were just starting to put the sheet so i actually didn't see the violent act but i saw the dead wow. body but you didn't care like New York, it was like New York when I moved to New York in 82, still seemed like, you know, taxi driver New York. Yeah, well, that was when it was. And it was coming a, from Haverhill. Wild must have fucking been West. So exciting because Haverhill is so boring in comparison. It, yeah, couldn't be more boring. <laughs> if, if its goal was to be boring, it's <laughs> gold medal. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it succeeded. <laughs> I remember Haverhill was so bad that when we were kids, I remember, I don't forget, maybe this was maybe the bison, around the bicentennial. I think they were trying to drive business because Main Street, <laughs> they can't even blame Walmart back then, was dead. There was nothing there. It was just a ghost town. And they're like, they just put all these banners up. Haverhill, the all-American city. But it was like the catchphrase is going to matter. going to make people open businesses. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I didn't I know. Like, oh, this is so bad. Time to sell flags. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so I, I went to New York City for the first time in the 80s as well. I'm trying to remember what year it was. It was like somewhere probably around 82 or 83. And uh, when we were in, in the city driving around, I remember thinking like, this is the craziest fucking place I've ever been in my life. The yeah. buildings were so big, it didn't make sense. Pulling up to it, uh, I remember we, we drove up on the West Side Highway and you see the city coming up in the distance. Like, you see the buildings getting yeah. larger and larger as you get closer. It's mental. It didn't seem real. <laughs> I remember being on the sidewalk. Now, this is coming from a place where a sidewalk means there's literally no other person on the sidewalk as far as you can see. Right. And they were standing on the sidewalk and must have been uptown somewhere. And it was like, you couldn't move with people. I was like, what is happening? Right. Like, I've never seen, like, this is how it is all the time. Like, I lived on a street in Haverhill, like, a car drove, drove down it, like, once a day. 
and it was probably your dad coming home from work. Like there was just nothing. If you could have, <laughs> if you had a time machine though, and you went from 1982 and you said, "Hey, what do you think it's going to look like here in 2019?" <laughs> You'd be like, "Fuck, man, it's going to be Mad Max." Yeah, like there'd be fucking cars driving with black smoke coming out of them, people shooting people right on the street. It's going to be, it's going to get worse. It's not going to get better. Yeah, the only thing I remember right towards my end of being there. There was that Tompkins Square, you know, downtown, mm-hmm. and that was where it's just like wherever homeless people lived. It was Alphabet City. It was like the worst. Um, well, wait, I want to back it up. When I first moved to New York, the first night I was there, this sounds like I'm making it up, and I'm not. The first night I was there, the dorm that I was in with all my roommates overlooked um, Union Square Park, which was like Needle Park. You just went there to buy dope, and that was it. It was now you go there because it's a farmer's market, and it's beautiful. And I heard this guy screaming and screaming and screaming. And I was like, Jesus Christ, what's going on? Because it was like 100 degrees. And of course, there's no air conditioning. I look out the window and I watch these cops beat up this guy. And I was like, and then they dragged him down to the subway. And the next day, all these cops showed up at the dorms. And it was that it was this guy, Michael Stewart. It became a really famous case. He was a, they called him a graffiti artist and he had been beat to death by the cops. And me and all my roommates saw it. Whoa. And the next day, they came and took our statement, and we all had to testify in front of the grand jury. This is my first day out of Haverhill. <laughs> wow. We, I witnessed a murder. But again, it's like the same thing with like my deal at Universal. I was like too naive and weird to really comprehend Were what I'd seen. Were you kind of pumped? Like, wow, I just was like, things are happening. I'm so jaded. It didn't disturb me or seem like, I don't know. I don't know what's wrong with me, but I am desensitized by all the violence I've witnessed as a, as a child, I guess. I, well, that was, would you see more violence before that? Well, there's one famous thing I remember as a kid. Besides, there's two famous things. I just thought, I don't know. When I was a kid, the family business that my mom came from was like carnivals. Like, you ever see that movie Carney? Yeah. With Gary Busey? Yeah. That's exactly the life as a kid that I remember. When I saw the movie, I was like, this is... This is what this was our life. We were at so that makes sense. This yeah. attraction you have to these drifters. Yeah, it was always what I was surrounded by. So that was the thing I remember as a kid. Except it was around 1977, I think, because I remember Kiss Love Gun. It just came out because I was all pumped. <laughs> I was all pumped about it. And, uh, and the family worked there. My mom and dad and we, me and my brother, had to work and sell food and stuff and i hated i used we used to have to dip the candy apples and hand them to people and they've healed now but i all my hand i had i had burns all over my hands because the apple candy would be so hot it would drip on my hand Uh. and burn my hands um anyway i digress but one night there was the gambling tents which were all rigged of course and someone had some guy getting fleeced for all of his money and came back and lit the tent on fire and then suddenly Shit hit the fan. Everybody that me and my little brother had been around all the time, it's like, boom, all these guns start coming out. And you Whoa. start hearing guns popping up. And then the tents just went like nothing was fireproof. So everything's on fire. It's complete chaos. And I was probably in fifth grade. My brother was probably in second grade. And everybody's screaming to run around. And, my, and, and this guy was like, that I don't remember his name, but he worked there. He was like, hey, you guys should come over here. And before he finished his sentence, somebody ran up and hit him in the face with a hammer and broke his whole face open. And it was just gushing blood. And we're like, <laughs> and then eventually my parents got us in the car and we left, which was, that was my parent. My mom was like, we're done. 
This is we're not doing this anymore. That was the last time we ever did it. Um, wow, what a great way to go out, though. <laughs> but the best was going to school in September. Like, what did you do this summer? And that was my story. Wow, we didn't go to Cape Camp so, Winnipesaukee. We went over in a carnival riot. <laughs> <laughs> what was the gambling tent like? What kind of games are they rigging? I don't know. I mean, everything's rigged. Like anything from, and there's even a great scene in Carney where um, a friend of mine who's in a lot of my movies, Meg Foster, plays the one. She's holding all the long strands of rope, and Joni Foster. She's trained Joni Foster. Like you pull the rope, and it's connected to a prize, or I, or like, and everything's rigged. Like the the weighted lead milk bottles you're supposed to knock down with a softball. I mean, everything's rigged. I mean, you, there's certain ways that you know how to cheat them. So that when the guy's showing you how to do it, look, it's so easy. Just throw it like this. But there's a certain way you can throw it. It'll work, but other ways it won't. I would never be in the gambling tents because they were actual gambling. We were like little tiny kids. But it was probably roulette wheels, I'm guessing. Mm. Things like that. That was, you know, the guy spins it and probably hits something with his foot and it never stops on the number that the guy's got all of his money on because he let him win a bunch of times or something. So when the fire broke out and people started shooting, who was shooting at who? I don't know what was going just on. Chaos. I just chaos. You know, we're little kids. Like, you're not really comprehending this oh, right. going on in like fourth or fifth grade. You're just like, that guy's now got a gun. I hear gunshots. Everything's on fire. There's smoke. People screaming. This guy's now gushing brains out of the front of his head. And so. Fuck. I said there were two stories. I was, oh, the second story. Uh, <laughs> the second story I kind of put in this, the new movie, Three from Hell. This was like uh, when I was in high school. I was in the backyard uh, rehearsing with my two friends, our, our you know, band or whatever, and we heard this screaming. And it was a bright, sunny day. It seemed like a David Lynch movie, Suburbia. And this fat, naked guy was running down the street covered in blood. He had been stabbed a whole bunch of times. And, like people are mowing their lawns and looking at and I just remember a bloody naked guy running down the street screaming like a weird scream. People scream weird when they get stabbed. And um, so I put some, there's something like that in the movie. But it just, yeah. What happened to him? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. He was like, ran, he was knocking on people. So I was like, ah, help me, let me in. And again, I was like, oh, it's weird. And I just went back and we continued rehearsing. Whoa. Like, again. That must have flavored the music a little bit. Yeah, I don't know. That just day. like, I should be. I should be really bothered by things like that, but I'm not. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a thing that happens when you see too much. It's one of the reasons why cops and soldiers have some of the oddest sense of humor. I can see that. Yeah, they've just seen too many bodies. They've seen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, imagine the guys that have to come scrape up all the stuff off the road and put oh, it in the bags. Oh, geez. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, after, you know. Yeah. But yeah, that was the life I remember. And I remember my mom's brother. He would always, uh, he didn't always do this, but sometimes he, he was a biker. So he'd come over to the house and he had a chopper with iron crosses on it. And he kind of looked like Lemmy with a big mustache. And I was like, this guy is badass. Like, drives around the neighborhood so everyone can see us. You know, there's a lot of that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> that is. So when you were saying that you collect films and you have uh, films, did you do you go back to like the really old ones like Nosferatu? Oh yeah, I love like silent that. movies, yeah. and now they're easier to get because I always loved Lon Chaney, but so many of the films yes. were hard to get. I was showing my kids Lon Chaney two nights ago. What, what movie did they? Well, watch? We, I was showing them the um, the original Wolfman. And I was showing him Jekyll and Hyde. I was showing him some of the Lon Chaney Jr. Was, well, Lon Chaney Jr. was Wolfman, but his Wolfman, dad, who yeah. was in like Phantom of the Opera Phantom and Hunchback of Notre Wasn't Dame, wasn't he Jekyll and Hyde as well? That was Lon was, Chaney, right? No, Frederick that, March. Oh, what? It, well, it depends. What there's the John Barrymore, silent Jekyll and Hyde, but you probably didn't oh. show the the Frederick March one is great. It's so perverted. Is it when really? He's like with the prostitutes and stuff. 
Isn't that the one you showed your kids? Like from the 30s? Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> from the 30s? Is After that what you... they porn, watch porn. Well, there's the boring um, one with Spencer Tracy. Is, is it boring? Eh, it just compared does... to the other one. The other one's... All... Because anything that's sort of like the pre-code stuff is really We watched a be- the beginning of the Spencer Tracy one because it was so strange. They, there's actually... when You know, on iTunes, you can watch a preview, but it's not really a preview when it's old films because they didn't have yeah. previews back then. So it's just a scene. And it's a scene when he's becoming Mr. Hyde, but he doesn't look any different. Yeah, he just kind of messed up his hair. He looks, looks a little meaner. You know? uh, like, the Frederick March one is one of the best ones ever made. It's so mm. good. But Lone Chaney was like, it was Phantom of the Opera, which is a really interesting one because he he like that he put on some really painful makeup for that I mean, film, he just right? invented everything. Yeah, yeah. The way he, the things he'd do. I mean, I don't know how much the stories have been exaggerated by publicity departments over the years but yeah i mean it's just incredible and movies like the unknown or the unholy three mm-hmm. like you can get everything now forever it's like impossible yeah. to see these movies for a long time i don't do it anymore but i used to collect vintage movie posters and that's what i would go after the the lon cheney silent movie posters because yeah. a lot of times it'd be like there's only one of these in existence and i was like i gotta have it then i realized i'm spending too much money on things <laughs> Those old films, um, you know, when I'm, I was trying to show them to my kids, I was just trying to. Ex- we were we were going from the 20s to the 30s. There's a movie that's the original horror film that I found out was tw- 1920. It's actually two years older than Nosferatu. It was uh, Doctor Something. Doctor Caligari. Caligari. Yeah, that's, that's a good yes. one. Yes. Yeah, we watched a little bit of that too. But I just wanted to show them how weird it is like the progression of film particularly like scary films because when my kids were real little uh, my wife was out of town and uh i said do you guys want to watch a scary movie that's not really scary and they were nervous how old are they at the time i think they were five and three or maybe six and four somewhere around there so i'm throwing down the test do you want to watch it (laughs) but i knew it wasn't going to be really scary so i put on the original king kong from what was that like 30 33 i think yeah and uh, we were laughing. I was like, let me tell you something. We're going to watch this, and it's so fake. It looks so dumb. I go, we're going we're gonna to laugh. And so we were cuddled up on the couch. They were nervous. And yeah. then, then once they saw the thing, they're like, that's it? That's the monster? <laughs> I was like, let me tell you something, kid. In 1933, this was scary for people. They really thought this yeah. was realistic. They thought this was amazing. Do you ever have that moment you watch something like, say, I, I do this like Frankenstein. Like you've yeah. seen it so many times that it's hard to watch it like you've never seen it before. But sometimes I'll be watching something and there'll be a scene where like Frankenstein is killing Fritz and there's no music and he's just screaming. And I was like, this must have fucking been so intense because p- no one had seen anything like this. They're watching this yeah. creature who they don't understand the makeup because no one knew what I was done. Like especially because he, he kind of – the first appearance of Karloff as Frankenstein, he kind of backs in and turns – and his I, head's flat. He's got yeah, bolts and on his neck. So in, it, the Jack Pierce makeup is so incredible that I was just like, people must have been like running for the door. Pull up a picture of what Boris Karloff looked like in that movie. I haven't seen that in forever. It's but I'm, so good. It was so good. For, I mean, and the, also, it's so difficult for us to understand perspective, like to 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 put yourself in their place back then. Yeah, look at that. Yeah, and the I mean, lighting like, was incredible. Now we're used to seeing that; it's so iconic that, yeah. like, uh, or that it becomes like. But if you'd never, I mean, never seen anything like that before. I mean, I guess going back to what we said a second ago, like Lon Chaney in Phantom of the Opera and, and his Quasimodo, you kind of the bolts in the neck. Crazy. But that must have just been like fucking 
cables you know. for a battery. It's <laughs> so crazy. The posts on his neck. Do you remember when uh, they did a remake with De Niro? I do. I don't remember a movie very good. I don't remember it either, but I remember it being terrifying looking. Like they yeah, he was updated. Yeah, he looked cool in that. Yeah. It's a tough one, though, with those movies because they got it so right the first time. Yeah. And the performances are like, when I watch, like, I, I really like Lugosi in Dracula. And when you watch it, I always feel like he's like Brando of that time because everyone else is like talking like, yeah, well, you know, like, like they're still yes. doing vaudeville and they're way over the top and they're too much. And he's like this in this doing this thing yeah. where sometimes you're like, you can't almost can't understand him because of his accent. Like, wow, he's like in this whole weird head trip and they're like doing play. Hey, listen, buddy, you know, like the way they're talking. I'm yeah. Like, it's, and that's why nobody can remember David Manners who got paid 10 times with Lugosi, but, but Lugosi is like this iconic thing, like Marilyn Monroe. I mean, that just was so out of time with so special what they were doing. Yeah. Even in the, when, in the film, there's a scene where the woman had been bit and uh, yeah. he's like, what's wrong? <laughs> what's going on? And, yes. and he's so corny and over the top yeah. and in that, you know, the style of that era, but Lugosi is on another level. And the, and like everybody, like a lot of those actors then seem very much like they were in the closet and they were trying to like play with the woman. And Lugosi <laughs> has that vibe like, I'm going to fuck everything on this set before I leave this movie. Yes, you know, yeah. like he just reeks of like, I'm from, I'm Hungarian and I'm going to yeah. nail every actress in this film. Yeah. And he's <laughs> a fucking powerful vampire. Like yeah. he bought into it. Like he yeah. was in the role. He was yeah. in the headspace. And a lot of those movies, another good one's like the Black Cat where like the same guy was in the Dracula's in it, and he's so like swishing over the top and Lugosi and Karloff together are so intense it's like this two different movies going on the, this weird <laughs> Hollywood movie and this weird thing these other guys are doing man it's like Brando and Apocalypse Now like he's making a whole different movie him and yes, Dennis Hopper yeah you know it's cool to just go back in time and see the progression of, of horror to go from those films like I still think Nosferatu to this day is one of the coolest vampires ever it's it was, so incredible looking. there was no there was no sort of benchmark yeah. before him right I mean and he looked so fucking weird with the long fingers and he looked yeah. creepy and the way he would rise remember when they had him on a board oh yeah it just was like straight up sit straight it's up so, it looks incredible and I still and I love the um the Herzog remake with Klaus Kinski. Oh, that's right. Werner amazing. Herzog did that. Yeah. And Kinski's so like, he's so yeah. perfect. Wow. Because he's like another crazy actor that yeah. just reeks of crazy right off the screen. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's just hard to do a good monster movie these days. I mean, I'm a gigantic Rick Baker fan. Obviously, you see the- Yeah, Rick's He's coming amazing. on here too. Oh, is he? Super pumped. Oh, yeah. His new book yeah. looks amazing. Yeah. I'm, I'm so excited. I'm getting him to- promote that but i'm just i was when i was a kid i wanted to be a makeup artist it was oh, one of really? the things that i wanted to do yeah. yeah so i studied rick baker and i studied you know the the early lon cheney days like we were talking yeah. about and i just love the prosthetics and like star wars and shit like which by the way i went to the star wars uh, attraction yesterday oh you at did disneyland it's the shit <laughs> Woo! that fucking star wars ride the ride is incredible man you're it's actually, simulated though right yes it's i can't simulated, do it but simulated you're, you're rides make me want to just 
<laughs> I won't throw up, but I'll feel like I want to for the rest of the day. It's awesome. It's awesome. So my, my kids were steering. They got a chance to steer. the. They were the pilots, and you're slamming into fucking – because they have to coordinate. One goes up. One goes oh, you know, really? left and right. So up and down is one kid, and left and right is the other. Are they and, next to each other in yes. the cockpit, or are they yeah. separate? Like how Next to each other. Han and Pretty Luke close, were. but they're screaming at each other. <laughs> Don't hit it. Oh, my God. But they're like asteroids flying. Yeah. Boom. Things are, They're hitting shit, but – but uh, awesome. just the ride is fucking incredible. I mean, you could see there's so much money poured into there, and apparently there's a bunch of other ones that are they're they're in the process of developing too. Oh, really? Oh, but yeah. I loved the those movies, and a big part of it was like like the cantina scene. If you if you went to that now, you'd be like, oh my god, it's obviously a mask. Oh like, yeah, so, yeah. Like their face doesn't be like. <laughs> it's like that weird werewolf guy. Yeah, and, no, but they're not moving. But back then, I was like, "This is amazing! This is the oh greatest my god!" Thing I've ever I can seen. so clearly seeing that. Remember seeing that movie for the first time? Oh, yeah, because I was like, it like you come out of. The, I remember coming out of the movie like shell shocked. Like everything I thought about, everything just changed. Yeah. <laughs> It's Life so, will never be the same. That's another movie that's so hard to put in perspective. I've watched it with my kids now, and it's like you got to bring them back to the 1970s when this movie came out. Yeah. Like, you don't get it. Like, back then, this was fucking insane how good it was. Yeah. People would watch... I mean, I watched it like... I think we had like little competitions with our friends to see who could watch it the most amount of times. I think I saw it like 13 times. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. And I... Someone gave me a laser... Not a laser, a Blu-ray... Of the original, before Lucas did all the extra stuff and ruined it, somehow they had cut together. Somebody went to all the trouble of getting like a Japanese laser, and they cut together a Blu-ray of exactly the movie as it was in 1977. What did he do differently in the new version? Enhanced some of the special effects. He uh, added that scene with the digital, you know, job of the HUD, and just like there'll be like the Tauntaun. That's like there's just little robots and bullshit everywhere that wasn't there in the uh, original. Like, to, and now. What seems so badass for effects in whatever was 2000 now looks super bad, <laughs> cheesy. So but the stuff from 77 still – that's why I, I always want to – like you watch 2001, you go like, how can this still look better than everything? Yeah. These are literally models shot in 1968 or something. Well, Kubrick knew the limitations of the visual format. And so he he shot things in a way where he didn't he wasn't willing to compromise the way something looked to show you something that like like sort of like the King Kong animation like that's the best they could do back then yeah but Kubrick figured workarounds I just read this new book that came out well maybe six months ago that's all about the making of two thousand one and it's the book is so detailed I wish I could remember the title of it. and it's amazing the amount of time like stuff you take for granted now just how they had to make the digital readouts on the computer screens mm. because that stuff did Didn't not exist. exist at all. So the amount of time that went into just simple background things that nobody cares about, it, it's just mind-blowing. Yeah. Just the weightlessness scenes and how they did all that stuff, which still look amazing. No, it's still an incredible movie. And it's also a time capsule, right? It's like it's one of those films that it's great, but it's also great and a time capsule. Yeah. it's I, I love it because um, – I love all of his movies for the same reason, because they take over the viewer. Like most movies, they're like, you watch it and it's doing what the movie thinks will make you happy. Whereas Kubrick's doing stuff like, well, this is what it would be like to be in space. Yeah. This yeah. is the pace it's going to unfold at. Yeah. Like, which is painfully slow at times. Well, you can't get away with that today. No, because people are too, 
they're, I don't know. Rolled up. They don't have the attention span, I don't think. And same yeah. thing with Barry Lyndon or Clockwork Orange. Doesn't matter what movie it is, his The Shining. Yes. Like now, if someone made The Shining, it'd go, it's great. You got to cut the first hour out of it. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Too We're much gonna build start up. it with the red rum scene. Yeah, start it with a hatchet. Yeah, no slamming yeah. into somebody. Yeah. <laughs> the opening shot would be you know, and then go three Scat months Man earlier. Yeah. yeah, getting hit with the axe. Yeah, they would do that. They would go three months earlier. Yeah. You know, they would do that. It's um, Crazy. it's it's cool to see though. Like uh, those films, they did what they could do with what was available. Whereas with now, the problem with CGI is they use it and they overuse it. And yeah. I think that. I don't, I don't, I mean, CGI can be phenomenal. For sure. But it's a tool and it's turned into a crutch. And I see it with actors. Like you see actors a lot of time and I feel bad for the actors because you see actors that you go, I know these guys are great, but they're awful in this movie because they didn't train to stand in a warehouse that's green and pretend to look at stuff. Yeah, right? So they really, like, like when you watch The Phantom Menace, you go... Why does it suddenly seem like Liam Neeson can't act? Right, right, Because right. he's like, they're like, look at that dot on the wall. I mean, and you know these guys are incredible actors. I was talking to somebody once, a kid that was in my movie, he was in all the Spy Kids movies. And he said it was so hard because they'd be on a green screen. And they'd be like, you're looking at that. Well, we're not sure what you're looking at, but just stare at that dot and react. He's like, well, what is it? <laughs> you know, is it a dragon or is it my mom? What am I reacting to? Like, we haven't figured it out yet. And he said he was always in a constant oh, state of God. confusion as to what he was reacting to. Well, it's hard, too, when you go back and you look at some of them. Like, you know what movie got it right that sort of didn't get enough respect in its time, but in in, in time, like as time passed, it's become more respected is Starship Troopers. Yeah, I don't. Re- I don't remember that movie that well. It's a you know, it's all I like you're going to say Forrest bugs. Gump. Oh, <laughs> no, but I like they sure. like removing Major Dan's legs. I mean, that's yeah. like when CG's awesome. I thought, oh shit, they found a guy with no legs who's a great actor because I don't know who Gary Sinise was back then. How about the ping pong scene? Yeah, yeah I mean, right. There's a lot of like, stuff like CGI that's shit. Yeah, the um, what was going to uh, with with monster movies though? It's um. Uh, Pat McGee, he's the guy who did that werewolf, the one that's out there. Oh, yeah. he, he'll make them for you like he makes models. Oh, really? Oh. And we had this conversation about it. We were saying that y- you can see CGI, and even if it's awesome, your brain knows it's CGI. That's funny. That I have that same thought that it's something subliminally your brain knows it's all fake. Yes, like Godzilla. Whereas like – yeah, like Godzilla, like when you know it's a guy in a rubber suit crushing right. things – like if you watch the original one, with like when they cut in Raymond Burr, there's something so dark and fucked up about that movie. Yes, because everything's that's real fire. There's actually three dimensional objects blowing up. But when it's so big and fake, like I always say, like what's scarier, uh, a giant CG creature that you know you will never see, or like a maniac with a pillowcase over his head? holding an axe coming at you like your brain goes that could happen i get it yes the other thing's like well that's i'm not gonna that's like roger rabbit that's not gonna happen <laughs> you know like, it's not it might yes. be cool or it might be ex- big but it's not like one of the scariest horror movies of all time is alien yeah and in the first few encounters they have with the creature you don't even see the damn no, thing because it's you couldn't show it that much like the you know like the shark in jaws but when you see it it's like it's actually there yes. and you can feel that its jaws are right in front of Sigourney Weaver's face. Yes. It's not like she's looking at nothing and her eyeline's a little off because it's a you know a tennis ball and a stick she's looking at 
There's something about it really happening in the space that I think people can feel it. And Sigourney Weaver is, pr- I think Sigourney Weaver in Alien is the greatest female action hero star ever. Because you bought it hook, line, and sinker. Yeah. She was a scientist. She wasn't supposed to be this heroine that's out there just f- fucking things up and killing everybody. And she wasn't supposed to be super hot and sexy and young. But she was hot enough. Because she became tough and it, yeah. it made her. But like like the whole. I remember when Alien came out. It was kind of like when the thing came out and all the reviews were bad, if you remember. Was and it like, really? Yeah. I mean, the reviews are everything are bad when you go back and look like, oh, these. There's no redeemable characters, or they're all cartoon, ca- you know, these cardboard characters. They rip everything apart. But, but like, it's like Harry Dean Stanton, Yafit Koto, and all the, every great character actor doing these yeah. great roles. But it was like, now if they remade that, it'd be like everybody. Fuck the would, reviews. You know, but that's the thing. You, the reviews never mean anything. They're just like so crazy. The first time, was it Harry Dean Stanton that saw it the first time? Who was it that saw it the first time where they they climbed down into the uh, they they climbed down the stairs and it's <laughs> it's right there. I don't you remember. You only see it for like a second, but it was a physical thing. But the point is, it was an actual guy in a suit. Yeah, and you knew by the way it was moving that it was an actual guy right in front of you. And there. it took up three dimensional space yes. in real life, yes. and you could feel it. You could yes, f- and you know, yeah. I mean, just like when the chest burst thing. Yes, it's a it. It's an actual yeah, thing. It's a thing. You know, yeah. it's like it's fucking bizarre. Or an American werewolf in London. Same exactly. thing. You see brief glimpses of this thing, like really quick, like one frame, one second of it, you know, and then at the end of it, you you see it. Even when they mur- they kill it in the hallway or in the uh, alleyway. Spoiler yeah. alert. Um, <laughs> that's you know, you only see it for a couple seconds when it, when it stares at her, and then they gun it down. Yeah, that was like the heyday for effects. Everybody I know who does effects, it was like the thing, American Werewolf in London, yeah. or the Howling was yes, like the, the thing the howling. that made every and Fangoria when that yes. started, and you started really getting articles and stuff, and like yeah. Rob Bottin and Rick Baker like, became like yeah. rock stars to the. The horror nerds. Well, the Rick Baker scene um, when he transforms into the werewolf in the chick's apartment, when yeah. he's at the, in the nurse's apartment for the first time, and he's like, I'm fucking burning up! <laughs> ah! His back is popping. And it's like Arr! bright. It's a bright yes. lit apartment. That's what makes it weird. Yes, and the hands stretch. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> fucking wild, man, to this day. So weird. To this day. And then he tried to kind of recreate uh, like the actual makeup style werewolf with the Wolfman with Benicio del Toro, yeah. But it just wasn't there. The movie wasn't there. It just wasn't wasn't quite good enough. But there's one fucking badass scene where it becomes the Wolfman when they're in the insane asylum yeah. and they're doing tests on him. Do you remember that film? I don't remember that film that much. I remember. I don't. I hate saying things because this was my thought at the time. I remember watching it thinking. Benicio del Toro seems like he doesn't want to be in this movie, <laughs> which is such a stupid thing for me to say because I don't know what the fuck he wants. Because right. I, th- I think he's a brilliant actor and I really like watching. Yeah, but, awesome. but it just had that feeling like I don't know what it was. And I, I, I've talked to people connected with that movie and I don't think it was a great experience for people for some reason. Mm. Maybe there's a lot of meddling. Probably a lot of meddling. Is that something that's a difficult thing to manage, or do you not have to deal with that anymore? I had to deal with that a lot when I made the two Halloween movies for oh, the Weinstein of course, Company. Because they're this gigantic franchise. Well, it was weird meddling. It was just like kind of psychotic meddling. How so? Just weird. Like, like my phone was ringing all the time when I'm on set working, and it'd be like, we think it should be this. I'm like, well, if while I, you're working? Yeah. Well, if I did that, then everything we shot 
doesn't match. <laughs> and it makes no sense. It's just like they're doing coke and just coming up with ideas. I don't know. It's just weird thoughts all the time. And but I mean, a lot of times, <laughs> I don't want to like name all these names of people. But I remember working on one movie that never happened, and whatever was the number one movie that from that weekend was exactly the notes I would get for what we were working on. <laughs> it didn't. And I swear to you, because it was around the time of Private Parts, and Private Parts was number one. I go, I guarantee you when I walk into the office, they're going to say, can we get Howard Stern in this movie? And they did. No! Yes, it didn't matter what it was. If it was Starship Troopers, they go, can we get giant bugs in this movie suddenly? It wasn't the Halloween movies. It was another movie that never actually happened, but... And you're just like, this is insanity. The uncreative executive that wants to be creative is that is a classic story in Hollywood. I mean, that's that's really like a villain in a film about a movie about a guy trying to make a movie. Yeah, I mean, I th- always thought I, I will give credit for things like I m- remember working with Bob Weinstein, and I always thought like the first thing he would say was spot on. Like they they love movies and they have a good sense of movies, and he would say something, he'd be like, ah, that. And what happens between the second act and the third act, it's a bunch of bullshit. It doesn't work. And you'd go, yeah, you're right. It is. But like when he went to the next level of the detail of what's wrong with it, it's kind of like someone going like, that joke's not funny. Here's how it would be funny. Mm. And you're like, no, no, no. Right. The first part of your sentence was all he needed. <laughs> I don't need you now to tell me how to make it funny. Right. And that's what happens. Like when you, I don't do them anymore, but back when I would be forced to do test screenings with an audience, you could just sitting there, you'll know. You'll go, okay, they're bored during this part. It's boring. Or they're not laughing. It's supposed to be funny. I don't now need that kid to get up and explain to the studio how to save the picture because yeah. he watched a movie once. So the, the, the process is like half good and half insanity. Do you get any people upset that in some way you might be glorifying violence? Maybe, but I never hear about it because I don't think that's true. I mean, or if it is true, it doesn't. I don't think it matters, <laughs> really, because <laughs> it's fake. It's not real, right? I mean, it's like I, I don't. I don't think the rules of real life apply to to art. Mm. I just don't, right? Because that's why art exists. Just like you know that you just and you just have to feel that way because it's like okay well if we're going to run every movie through the pc filter then in american history x edward norton can't be racist sure and yeah. now we actually we don't have a movie or right. you know you know travis bickle can't kill anyone he just has to save jody foster because he's a nice person right? you know like yeah. we're just like it ruins everything i mean but the rules of real life are different but for for fiction i mean they can't be rules right and how else are you going to depict these absolutely possible scenarios like if we're saying that there isn't suicide or homicidal maniacs in real life like well, that's nonsense so if you're allowed to make a, a depiction of real life yeah. of course it's going to have to include racists murderers psychopaths everything. and i just think it's you know it's it's art and it can go anywhere and it's always if it's shocking that's probably good and it won't be shocking next year like how right whatever you're showing your kids that at one point was shocking and now they're like seriously dad yeah we were talking about <laughs> jaws that the yeah. jaws today apparently would be pg it was pg then was it can you believe that no yeah was it? It was. Oh my god! It was just shocking, especially scared the fuck out of everybody. <laughs> but that's because my parents took us to see it, which was awesome. But I was traumatized for sure. Yeah, that was a crazy movie. I didn't want to have anything to do with the water after that movie. Yeah, I still don't. But the, pe- the special effects as well, man. When that shark rises out of the water for the first time, 
You're when like, he's throwing the chum in the water, yeah. come on down here and chum some of this shit. We're going like, to need a bigger boat. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's yeah. hard to believe those lines were like once just lines in a script. Yeah, I know. They're mm. iconic. Yeah. They're a part of culture now. It's amazing. Yeah. Do you think that there is there a style of film or a kind of movie that you want to do that you haven't done yet that you're thinking you'd like to get into? I mean, there's two different projects I tried to develop for a long time and they both failed to get off the ground. One was this movie called The Broad Street Bullies. And it was about the 1974 Philadelphia Flyers. And the movie is, the, the true story is so insane that you can't believe it's real. Just the way that they decided, you know, they were a fledgling team, nobody cared. So they basically built a team of tough guys, you know, which is kind of like slap shots, almost like the same. Mm -hmm. Won the Stanley Cup twice based on just being so scared so, and so terrorizing other teams would be scared to play them. And they'd be like, oh, you get the Philly flu because major players would be like, oh, I'm too sick to play when we get to Philly. Cause the, and you go back and you watch the fights that took place during the, the, those seasons. They literally go into the crowd and they're fighting with fans. They come off the ice. They break up. I mean, when the guys are fighting, it's not, and it doesn't seem like good natured, like, oh, okay, we're going to go, we're going to go. It seems like gripping someone's hair and punching them in the face till their teeth are all gone type fighting. Cops are breaking up the fights on the ice. Cops. Cops. <laughs> with skates? No. Pol uniformed policemen come onto the ice and start breaking things right, up. Right, but they're sliding around with their... Yeah, trying to... Their it's all shoes. on YouTube. It's amazing. I mean, I, just, I, I researched this for, for years. And, um, and then they just, you know, and, and Bobby Clark at that time was like the most hated man in hockey. I don't know if you're a hockey fan at all, but he was just like... Another one of those guys who he had... I don't know. I could go on forever for a movie that didn't make, but, but I, I kept trying to make it go and go and just could, it just never... You could just never, and I was in, went to Philadelphia and I was hanging out with the team and I was in their archives and having access to everything. I thought, this is going to happen and just couldn't, it wouldn't move. Why, why not? I don't know. I don't know if the team and the team owners want to glorify that time in the, in, if there's an amazing documentary on it that was on HBO, maybe like five years ago you got to watch it it's what's do you remember nuts. the name it might have been called broad street bullies because it was you know the spectrum was on broad street mm -hmm. so that's how they get the name but it's nuts and it was like you know the dave schultz and he's wearing like a nazi helmet and he was the tough guy on the team that everybody was petrified of and these guys are like had really long hair and big beards i mean it's not like hockey you know? everybody looked like a <laughs> maniac and they'd get stuff like you know you'd see him get stitches Get hit, get stitched, go back on the ice with the stitches. Their jerseys covered in blood, and they don't even change their jersey. They're playing covered in blood. Well, it's such a crazy Something sport. Something they never do now. Well, the sport still to this day is such a throwback because it's the only sport where you're allowed to fight in the middle of the sport. Hockey, imagine if they had that with basketball. Hockey players are the toughest motherfuckers because I always loved hockey. I wanted to be a hockey player when I was a little kid, and that was my thing. And – for a long time, me and my wife, we had season tickets for the Kings. So we'd go to every single game, year after year after year. And we'd always hang out with the team. And they'd come to our house and then party. And we'd always be with them in Vegas. And, and they're like football players on skates. And they're all for like these like guys from like Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. And like they yeah. get their teeth out and they get crazy in the bar. And <laughs> they're like mental. And they're just like, who else is skating at 90 miles an hour crashing into boards yeah. that are just have no give? But it's so interesting that it's the one sport where it's written in that you can fight. <laughs> they fight. I mean, it's, it's so funny. It's so crazy. Like that would make so many sports so much more interesting, but nobody would ever do it. 
Yeah. It's, it's literally the tough guy sport. It is the tough guy sport. And the thing that always drove me crazy, like, drove me crazy, like it involves me, but they would always advertise the LA Kings as like, it's like this family thing. Like, oh, come on down and cheer for the Kings. And it'd be like a girl in a hockey jersey on the billboards around town. I'm like, you should just put up mugshot style portraits of the players, <laughs> like smiling with their teeth missing. And it just says, you think you're fucking tough? Right. Kings. Because, they're, yeah. and then it's not like the old days where they're kind of like skillful. They're like, this guy's like six foot five and you put them on skates and they're huge and they, you know, they, they're all jacked up and big like football players except they're on skates. They're fucking I, I think it would be dudes. a hard sell for a lot of people. But, but what's not a hard sell is MMA, which is weird, right? Because yeah. that's like the darling of so I mean, you go to the fights and Matt Damon will be there and Leonardo DiCaprio and everybody wants to be seen there and Kanye's in the crowd. And it's one of those things where people have decided like that's okay. Meanwhile, they're – smashing yeah. their faces open with elbows <laughs> on the ground mental, man. heads trapped against the cage <laughs> and they're pummeling each other and it's okay and you watch it they, they break it up like i'm pretty sure that guy's already got brain damage you needed yeah. to stop that punching yeah. a few seconds earlier well it's it's, <laughs> it's okay a crazy though, sport because it's become accept like like that's what i'm saying it's weird like a fight in a basketball game is a giant deal <laughs> Like, oh, my God. A guy shoves another out. guy, and it's like a this big deal. This is crazy, yeah. If a guy, you know, like, judo tossed a guy and landed <laughs> on his head. Somebody did that recently in a hockey game. It was awful. Like, Robin Black did a breakdown of it where some guy got a guy in a clinch and hit him with a hip toss and slammed his head on, onto the concrete. It was horrible. It's weird. I mean, I can see why they... They want. I think they probably like hockey being more family friendly because the arenas are so nice. You bring the kids, yeah. and they don't want a bunch of maniacs beating the shit out of each other. But they can still fight. They can still fight, but it, is, it is. Watch this. This is crazy. Boom. Oh, that's bad. That's horrible. That's an asshole move because, like, that's not even fighting. Like, and plus, Ugh, that guy landed rough. with both of their weights. Guys on his head. He's out cold. I mean, that's like serious, serious fucking brain. Yeah, damage. I remember one time, one particular incident of the Kings game where the guy was out and it went on forever and the vibe was so heavy in the arena because we're like is he dead because mm. you know you know when someone hits and they just yeah. stop moving yeah, in that way stiffen and up. Like, freaks you out you pull up some Broad Street bullies fighting from 1974 yeah, pull up some of that yeah I've seen or so Dave many Dave Schultz oh that's this thing yeah this is the documentary it's amazing oh look at the way they look back then yeah everything it's like back in the day it's just such a weird thing to see people from that era <laughs> oh here they uh, are yeah they don't this is like early days before they became insane oh so it built up because what happened was when they were starting as a team they got really manhandled one time by a certain team and they were like this is never going to happen again and they rebuilt the team with basically like thug type guys i'm always amazed that anybody could punch while they're on skates and that's i can't even skate <laughs> How the fuck do you maintain your? I don't know. These position? guys are amazing athletes. I one time I went I went down and got to skate at practice with the L.A. Kings with the guys who were injured. And man, that rink seems small when those big guys all get on the ice. I'm it sure. seems like wow, there's no room up here. But it's also they collide into each other against the wall, which the amount of shock on your body. I know. It's amazing that. I mean, they just go and go and well, go. That's maybe Dave we can reignite some interest with this conversation because I think that would be it. Look at he's pulling his fucking hair. Yeah. Holy it shit. It wasn't like, it was. I'm going to watch that. It's amazing. 
So have you tried again recently? Or no, do, I, do I you tried, really think that it's just like they just don't want to be connected to this story? Well, there's this guy, Ed Snyder, who was the guy who started the whole team. And that's where, and I met with, I thought he was the reason it wasn't going to happen. And then he passed away because, I mean, he was pretty old. And then we started talking to the newer people and it just, I don't know, you're like, how many years of my life am I going to dictate, you know, right, put right, into this? Right. And, you don't know. And someone said to me one time, well, you got further than anyone else ever did. I'm like, how many times did they try to make this movie? Why didn't you warn me about that five years ago? <laughs> Is there any other kind of movie that you're you're interested in other than something like that? Well, yeah, there was this other one that I worked on for a long time that never went either. I had bought the rights to this book called Raised Eyebrows, which was a light that, about the last few years of Groucho Marx's life. Ah. This guy, Steve Stolia, wrote it. And he was a 19-year-old college kid who started this petition drive. Do you like the Marx Brothers? Love them. Yeah. Because Animal Crackers had been lost. That was the lost film. And at UC, I think it was at UCLA. Sorry, Steve, I can't remember your college. Um, he started this petition drive to get Animal Crackers released from the vaults and released because it hadn't been seen since like the 40s or something. And he did. This was in the, this was in the early 70s. And through that, he became Groucho's assistant. But Groucho's final years are really dark because he kept having strokes and he was ill. And he had this woman, Erin Fleming, who was supposed to be his – they kind of played it like it was his girlfriend, but she was sort of the caretaker. And it was turns into Sunset Boulevard inside his house. you know. And Steve eventually is put in charge of Groucho because the it's a really dark turns story. Turns into Sunset Boulevard house. Because he, Groucho is being abused and drugged by this woman. She oh, isolated wow. from his family and it's like happening in this Beverly Hills home and – it's just dark. It was dark towards the end for Groucho. Really? And But the book was fascinating because the guy who wrote it, Steve, who's you know still alive and we're friends, I was just like, it was one of those books you read in like five seconds. And I just happened to find it by accident. I was like, this is an amazing movie. But again, years and years go on trying to get it made and just can't get it going. Groucho was such a controversial character. He had one of the greatest lines ever on You Bet Your Life. He, he's talking to this guy and he's asked the guy like, uh, you married? Yes. How many kids you got? <laughs> the cigar line. Yeah. yeah. He, he, the guy says he got a gang of kids and he goes, geez. He goes, he goes, oh, I love my wife. He goes, I love my cigar too, but I take it out of my mouth every now and then. Yeah. That is That was a hugely controversial line. Yeah, he was amazing and he was like, and yeah, he was very out. eyebrows. Yeah, there it is. He was very outspoken. Wow. He was like on Nixon's shit list and stuff. And he didn't My give years a crap. inside Groucho's house. Yeah. Wow. It's really fast. If you get that book, you'll read it in like two seconds. That's. It's always sad when some iconic old figure like is being taken care of as he's older and you know he's getting fucked over and someone's waiting for him to die so they can get the money. Yeah, and she kept kind of doing something like, we're going to make you come back, Groucho, and we're going to do a TV special. It's going to be, you know, like you and Frank Sinatra. And Groucho's like, you know, had on his like, third stroke and it's like can't really talk or you know Ugh. and it's just like and a couple of the final appearances of him are pretty rough because he was pretty sharp and good even when he was older we watch him on dick cavett or something but then it got bad and then how did this lady get into his life <sighs> how did that go down i'm trying to remember she was uh it's been i think she was a secretary at first and just kind of weaseled her way in Ugh. i can't remember exactly i should i should be able to remember i read the book so many times but. there's so many stories like that of like oh i think there was a stan lee story like that in his last few days that like, happens a lot yeah you know, people were trying to get I, his money i remember uh, remember that one, martha ray yes that was like yeah, the yeah, thing yeah. towards the end with her like it was like oh and her boyfriend and she's like this in a wheelchair oh and it's like this that's right yeah, yeah weird yeah. shit and i was like yeah oh 
Yeah, that is sad shit. And their yeah. kids are done with them, and so someone else is taking care of them. Well, they're so old, their kids have all died of old age. <laughs> you know? And this was like, you know. So you wanted to do that film? Yeah. What happened with that? It just be, it just couldn't get it going. We thought we'd, every time it seemed like we were on the move, it just would stall. And then I had a falling out with the producers, and I was like, oh, you know, five years spent with this, I'm out. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. The dream of time. Yeah. That, that's the thing. Like for every movie I've ever gotten made, there's probably five others that I tried to get made that couldn't get made. So it's a real time suck. Yeah. That's, that's a fucking huge drag, man. Now, when you, when you do get a film made, is it generally that you come to the studio and you have this idea and you bring it to them? And yeah, then... it's usually like, uh, well, the Halloween movies were different right, because I remember um, I had, I had no thought. I wasn't thinking about Halloween. I wasn't thinking about anything like that. And um, I got the thing like, oh, you know, the Weinstein company wants you to go have a meeting with him. Bob Weinstein, he's in L.A., yada, yada, yada. So I go in to meet him and he's just like, Halloween, what do you think? And I was like, oh, it's a great fucking movie. I mean, I didn't know what he was getting at. He's like, we own the rights and we want to do something with it. We don't know what to do. Because they didn't know if they wanted to make another sequel or just call it Halloween but not have Michael Myers. and uh, Like, there was no preconceived idea. And it was my idea to basically try to reboot it, start over with new people playing all the same roles and do that. And that was, I don't know, it came out in 2007, so it was probably 2006 when I did that. Who was involved in the more recent one? Lionsgate is the company that did Three from Hell. Because I had done, after Universal booted me with House of a Thousand Corpses, it was eventually acquired by Lionsgate. And Lionsgate made the sequel, Devil's Rejects, and then which was already 15 years ago. And a couple of years ago, I got a real bug to make another one. I just went into Lionsgate when it was the same executive still there. And I was like, what do you think about doing this? And they were like, they were saying like, you know what? That was the last really fun time we had making a movie. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> that's got to feel good. Yeah, it was great. I was like, wow, that's sad, but okay. Now, do you have long-term plans like in terms of like what you want to accomplish as a – a guy who makes movies? Well, yes and no. I mean, I don't have a – I'm not trying to gear up towards making bigger films because I know I wouldn't work in that system because it's just not – I don't want to make things by committee. I want right, to go like, right, this is the fucked right. up crazy thing I want to do and I don't want to water – because I know so many people that will be like like our friend Tom Papa. I remember him telling me about his TV show, Come to Papa, that – um it was like this certain idea. He said, by the time the TV people watered it down, changed it, and mm. it gets on the air, it's like, well, it's so far removed from the original idea yeah. that I don't, you know, and I don't want to do that, and, you know, and so I would rather, my goal is just get it made, whatever it takes. Not right. worried about. Don't try to be blockbuster guy. I don't care. I mean, I've, you know, right. had the Halloween movies were on 4,000 screens. It was like the number one movie made up, but it didn't make me any happier. It's just about making the thing where I can look at it and go like, I love it. I'm done. Because, you know, that's at this stage, that's what I want to do. Yeah, that the genre is still so attractive, but there's just not a lot of those examples other than like, well, your films are probably the most prominent currently. Well, I mean, if everything's meant, I mean, horror movies are big business, but if they look at it that way, then they start making them overly palatable to a wide audience there's types of horror movies though you know there's like yeah. supernatural horror movies there's monster movies but then there's like homicidal maniac movies and there's you so kind of own stuff. that shit <laughs> <laughs> the 
Redneck homicides. That's I mean, mine. Who's, that's who's my genre. Got it. You know, it's like the hills have eyes. Yeah, right. And then you. There you go. Right. Have eyes. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like that kind of psychopath chainsaw massacre type shit. I love white trash type stuff. <laughs> well, the carny because background. that's just yeah. I was that typical kid who worshipped evil Knievel. White oh, trash kid. Yeah. I mean, that's, maybe that would be a fucking movie. <laughs> that man. would be a movie. That'd be a fucking movie, man. I worked with his son. I worked with uh, Robbie. Knievel? Robbie Knievel yeah. during the Fear Factor days. Oh, really? Yeah, he did something on Fear Factor. Yeah, <laughs> it was cool. He's a nice guy, but you know, I was like, "Damn, dude, your dad was a fucking psycho." Yeah, this shit that that guy subjected his body to. It's crazy, and when you Ooh. watch that shit. And you watch the Philadelphia Flyers, that time in the 70s yes. was fucking mental. It was mental. And you're just a little kid watching Evil Knievel and listening to Alice Cooper and watching hockey fights, and that determines who you become. Yeah, Evil <laughs> Knievel was just, I mean, there's a, I think it was a Rolling Stone piece of his body where they showed all of his x-rays and all of the, Crazy. the bone breaks and steel rods that were, in his, various bones that were screwed together. I'm like... Fuck, man! What kind of pain was this guy in? I don't know. I mean, did you see the? There's a fairly new documentary. I think it's called Being Knievel. I think it's amazing. Well, it's it's maybe a couple years old actually, but um, yeah, just any one of those crashes. I think this is a famous one in London, and he jumps over the double decker buses, and you can see him land, and the bike looks like it's made out of rubber, and he looks like he's made out of rubber. And you're like, it looks like every bone in his body just broke. Oh. And that's, you know, that's going to do it again and do it again. Oh, God. I mean, that was his thing. Imagine that being your thing. Your, your thing is you fly through the air on something that's supposed to stay on the ground. <laughs> yeah, a full-size <laughs> Harley that's not made for jumping At or all. doing anything. At all. Or landing, for that matter. Doesn't have any particularly, like, <laughs> like bouncy shocks or anything. No. <laughs> it's just hitting, like, boom. Ka-dunk. And just, <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. It's... It's a weird thing to be that guy because there was, I mean, there was some people in the past that had done um, some pretty interesting shit and risked their lives, but he was doing it consistently with an engine. That was like right. the thing about him. It's like, and he was like one of the most famous people in America. Yeah, with the, like, like an American flag suit. Yeah, it's like the Fonz and yes. Evil Knievel. You know, <laughs> <laughs> there he is. Uh, being, being Knievel, evil. you got to see that if yeah, you haven't being, seen it. Wow, it's amazing. Wow. Yeah, what a crazy <laughs> And this stuff character. in there that kind of blew my mind because we all remember the Snake River Canyon thing. Yes. But they were showing how out of control it was with the people that showed up and were so drunk and the crowds were fighting and crazy just on their own. It's, it's mental. <laughs> like just what was going on around the, the event. That's one of those things you can't really do today the same way. Like if someone jumps over things today, it's like so many people are jumping. Like you're not going to get famous that way, because like think about the just the bananas shit those BMX guys do with their flipping oh, yeah. three times in the air. It's commonplace. Almost. Yeah, no, watching Evil Knievel is like watching the original King Kong with your kids. Right. You know, it's right. like like oh that was a big deal once. Uh, he jumped seven buses. Whatever, I did it on my bike. Yeah, that would be a great film. I don't know what you have to do now. Catch bullets with your bare hands or something. <laughs> like for people, oh, that guy's rad, bullet man. Uh, you know. Well, now there's people doing parkour and climbing buildings with no ropes. <laughs> it's like, you ever watch that kid, Alex Honnold? Do you know who he is? No. 
He's the free solo oh, guy. Oh, the free solo guy, yeah. Oh, I still haven't seen that yet, but everyone tells me. He's so it's... nice and so normal. When you talk to him, I've had him on the podcast a couple of times, and I'm like, how are you the guy that's wanting to climb the face of these <laughs> fucking cliffs? And some of so them, weird. They're, they're not straight up and down. They're and leaning backwards. He's holding backwards. on by a finger. Yeah, he's to... got like hands wedged in these cracks. Look, look at that picture. Yeah, that's mental. That doesn't make you shit your pants. <laughs> And he's getting older, and he's starting to get injured now, too. Oh. And, you know, he's for the first time in his life, he's had, you know, like, you know, for a long time. He had no injuries, no problems, and he's, you know, he's been doing this a long time now. His body's not holding up the way it used to. When do you retire? Like, when are you Muhammad you Ali retire when Evil Knievel when you know it's done? When the finger stuff. slips, huh? Yeah. <laughs> that's when you retire. Oh, I mean, that's... that's what all of the people that have done it before him think. They think, look, this is going to end badly. Yeah. You know, it's it's crazy to be known as the guy who's doing something that scares the fuck out of everybody. Yeah. <laughs> You're the guy that everybody's watching to eventually fall. Look at that. Like, look at the angle. That yeah, he, that doesn't even seem possible. He, well, he's incredibly strong. His hands, like he's a, a slender, thin guy, but he has gorilla hands. Yeah. The fat ass fingers. And he just can shove them into these cracks and hang on in place. He was telling me a story about how he was free solo climbing this one mountain when he realized, you know, like fucking 300 feet up that he forgot his powder. <laughs> so he's got no chalk. So he's, you know, things are getting slippery. He's climbing and he finds these guys that are connected to ropes halfway up. And he says, hey, I don't have any powder. Can I borrow your chalk? <laughs> so the guy gives him his chalk bag. He makes it all the way to the top and leaves the chalk bag at the top for the guy. It's like, what? One of those guys are like, that guy doesn't have any ropes as he's going by. No ropes or chalk. He doesn't have <laughs> any chalk. fucking chalk. Like, you know, like if you ever lifted weights, like when that bar gets slippery, it sucks. Like you need chalk yeah. to grip things right so you can, you can really get a hold of stuff. But that's just weights. You could put the weights down. Yeah, the worst <laughs> fall is going to be three feet to the floor. Oh, fuck. I can't, I can't even watch his stuff. I'm like, my hands are sweating right now thinking about it. <laughs> I haven't watched that, but I got to. Everyone's always talking about it. No, it's an amazing documentary, but he's a just a fascinating guy because it doesn't make sense. He's not like some Steve-O type guy who's yeah. just a, a maniac and just like always trying to freak people out and do the next thing. Like, no, he's <laughs> I'm real. I'm putting a rocket on a sharpen cart yeah. and crashing into a brick wall. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> like when Steve-O comes up with ideas, like he'll tell them to me. I'm like, don't do that. Don't do that, man. Yeah. You know, like, stop doing that. Oh. But I get it. That's who he is. He's yeah. a, he's a le legitimate bona fide maniac. The yeah. Alex Honnold guy is so calm and peaceful. You know, and he's, he said, like, he's like, well, you know, I'm pretty mellow. You know, it's like when the whole thing is pretty mellow. It's like when things go wrong, that's when it's not mellow. I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. kind of how everything is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so do you see things like that, like current event stuff or like a person like him and think, hmm, is that a movie? Is there a movie in that? Like. Sometimes I see things. I'm trying to think the last time I thought that. And I'm always late. Like you'll go, oh, I just saw that. Oh, it's already in production. Like, so I'm never ahead of the curve enough to be on top That's of it. That's a bummer. You know? Yeah. But uh, no, there's all kinds of things like that that I would love to do. But it's like, it just, I don't know. It's uh, the time. Sometimes I just, I, I've tr like I said, I told you two projects that took so much of my life. I mean, I sat there and watched the... Um, 
because the whole Flyers movie ended with them winning the cup the first time. And I watched that series. I got all the games on with all the original commercials, which were incredible. The commercials with Salvador Dali selling house paint, like weird shit. Um, and I, wa- I had the I had the whole series like memorized. I could have called the commentary on it. I watched thousands of hours of watching this hockey. I went because I was like, if I'm going to make this movie, I'm going to be the number one Phillies expert on everything. I don't want anyone to say anything. I'm like, oh gee, I don't know. Now I can't remember anything. And then it was all for nothing. <laughs> but that's so the way they, that's the way you, things are anyway, though. But so you had invested too much. Yeah. But you kind of had to because it's like I figured with a topic like that, they have such – the fans are right. – I mean, they're like that. They're like gods in Philadelphia. I mean, the best thing – this. just think of this as a movie. Okay, just this one scene. When they introduced the team in Philly, I think it was 1967, they had a parade to introduce them because hockey was coming to town. They said they had a parade with the players, and there was like maybe no one there to watch the parade. And even the, one of the guys goes, all I remember is a guy leaning on the lamppost giving me the finger – as the parade went by. And then when they won the Stanley Cup, they had a parade. Two million people showed up in the streets of Philadelphia. And the footage of that, if you can find it while you're over there, the entire, you know, like 100,000 people show up for the Lakers and everyone was crazy. Two million people is four Woodstocks. In the streets. <laughs> in the streets of Philadelphia f- to watch a team drive by and like in the back of like, you know, convertibles, like, and they're all, they all look like porn stars because they're on fur coats <laughs> and big mustaches and big afros. They're amazing. <laughs> it's like, you just, the, and that was such a short period of time. That was maybe like seven years from go fuck yourself to like, you guys are Philadelphia. Wow. And it was all during that time period of like, you know, when they made Rocky. So Philadelphia was like the shithole oh, of the, wow. America, you know, and then and every sports team was bad. And the 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 real life story just reads like look at that. Here's fiction. The footage. I mean, holy shit! Look at all those. People. And that was the entire parade road. People wow. were hanging out of buildings. It was just. It was. Oh, that's when they won the game. It was just incredible. Wow. Well, it's growing chilling. up in Boston, um, believe it or not, I wasn't a hockey fan. Oh my god, I love. I worship the Bruins. I didn't. <laughs> I was just into martial arts, and I didn't even like sports. I I just was uh, I I found out about martial arts really the school that I wound up going to because I was coming home from a Red Sox game. I was into baseball at the time, and uh, I went up to this gym and uh, this martial arts this Taekwondo school, and I happened to be going there right when this guy, his name was John Lee, was practicing, and he was a national heavy light heavyweight champion at the time, and just incredible. And I got to see him hit this bag, and I remember thinking, I can't believe someone can do that. Yeah, Like, he hit it so hard. He was kicking this bag, and I was like, <laughs> fuck, I want to learn how to do that. But What year was that? This was uh, 19, I was 15, 14, 15, so 81, 82, somewhere around there. Okay. And um, when uh, I was 19 years old, so I, I, I really wasn't paying attention at all to sports. I was balls into martial arts. But I was working at the Boston Athletic Club, and Bobby Orr, who was long retired, used to come there to work out. Oh, yeah. And he had had so many knee surgeries. Oh, it was terrible. That I, I used to have to help him. I mean, everybody was like, holy shit, it's Bobby Orr. Yeah. Bobby Orr's here. <laughs> Bobby Orr, it's fucking Bobby Orr. I didn't, I, I kind of knew he was Bobby yeah. Orr, but it did. It wasn't like I was meeting Bruce Lee or something. Like I was meeting Bruce Lee, I probably would have fainted. But it was, yeah. it was this hockey player guy. 
and I used to have to help him to get on the Versa Climber. You know what a Versa Climber is? No. There's one of them out there in the gym. You you climb on it. It's an amazing uh, cardio machine. But you put your feet in these things. It was in Rocky, like Drago. Oh, and you kind of like, oh yeah, he's in Russia. Uh, yeah, he was, okay, Drago was working on it. But um, Bobby wanted to get on this thing, so I used to have to help him because he couldn't bend his knees. His knees, like the range of motion. Like here's a, here's a leg. Here's a normal range of motion. Yeah. Right. His knees would go like this. They wouldn't lock all the way out. They would bend slightly, and they would move from this bent slightly to this. That's all he had. That's crazy. He had a little bit of bend in his knees. That's it. Yeah. So he, was... he would play racquetball, and he would just fall over. So he, like, he'd play racquetball, but the ball was over here. He would just tip uh. and fall over. It was like he was on these legs that weren't legs. It was like he was on sticks. They just didn't work. You know, and I, I remember seeing the scars up and down the sides of his legs. Yeah, I remember seeing those as a kid, like that you'd see pictures. I followed the Bruins, so I was always into Bobby Orton. Yeah, and he probably always was back on the ice too soon. Yep. Another injury. Yep. Stitch him up, rip him up. Yeah, well, I know. They didn't know how to fix things back then either. And he's so incredible. Bobby Orr was like at that time, like if young Brad Pitt was the greatest hockey player of all time. I mean, he didn't right. even seem real. Right. You know, he's like the golden boy. And. I'm gonna keep making you pull up hockey clips, but like you see some clips, and it's like the way he's skating compared to everyone else. It's like, did everyone else just learn that day? Like he's just <laughs> skating around him like they don't even exist. It's just it's like, and as a kid, you're like, this is the greatest person alive. Well, that's next probably to Evil Knievel. Also, why he blew his knees out, right? Because he was just it was taking these crazy risks and moving so fast. Probably, yeah. I mean, he was just, and people um, were probably trying to take him out left and right too. Yeah, I mean, he – and the, well, the thing with him too, he was a defenseman, not a forward. So he would play like a forward, but he would be a defenseman. So he's supposed to be the tough guy defending the goalie, yet he's like a leading scorer. So he was sort of wow. too good for everything. <laughs> so he's like – yeah, so he's taking all the hits and scoring all the goals. He was such a nice guy. I remember thinking that too. When I was a kid, I always used to be intimidated by people who are really nice guys. Because <laughs> I was like, how is he so nice? Because I was – kind of a prick it was, was, was driving me crazy like that he was so i felt inferior i was like god i wish i was that nice you know because yeah was, every i get i know you're i was mean when i you, was a mean kid because i was fighting and i was like the yeah. way to fight is to be mean yeah like you want to get good at fighting you got to be fucking mean so yeah. by then i'm five years into fighting and that's all i want to do and so i'm around this guy i feel like god he's so he's so nice and he's like the greatest hockey player of all time like fuck like, I'm such a loser. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I remember. It's funny. I remember in high school, the kids that would always be in the fights and kick everyone's ass, you're like, you can't compete with that. He's just born crazy. He likes to fight. Yeah, if you punch people, him in the yeah. face, it'll probably make him happy after he smashes your head into the sink and, you know, kills you. It's just like, it's just, yeah, it's just a different way people are. Well, I never <laughs> got into, I wasn't really a street fight person at all. I was scared of it. That's how I got into martial arts because I was scared of fighting, but- the, the the difference between people that were like a Bobby Orr or a regular player always fascinated me. I was like, how is one guy Michael Jordan, yeah. right? How is one guy, how's one guy, you know, Reggie Jackson? What is he doing different? How does this guy rise above everybody else? They're just special because I would read about him and be like, you know, they knew he was good when he was a kid. They'd be like, come watch this eight-year-old out really? skating people. Like he was, I think, I forget, I'm, I don't want to, I'm not a Bobby Orr expert. I can't remember things, but I remember that like, you know, being scouted at 14, like he was an adult. He was 14. so good. 
but that's what you have to be, I guess. You know, I mean, there are just some kids. I mean, we all remember kids from high school. That's like, why are you? <laughs> right. You're like a professional athlete and we're like stupid kids. Yeah. Like, you know. Right. Like, why are you shredded? And we're just like dopey kids. Like, what's going on? What here? kind of musicians too, right? Remember when Prince first came out? Wasn't he like yeah. 19 when he came out with I Want to Be Your Lover? Yeah. Some people are just special. Yeah. <laughs> They're yeah. just Mozart, but in fighting or it's hockey. It's so humbling. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's where it goes back to the thing we said like an hour ago. Fooled them again. Because <laughs> like, those guys are actually special. <laughs> right. Well, there's always going to be people like that, right? That just put it all into perspective for you and make you realize like, wow, I'm just... Okay, I'm a regular person. It's fun watching people like that, but yeah. But then there's people like that sometimes that they just self destruct because they don't care that they're good, right? You know, and I remember people like that too, and like they do nothing with it. That's true too. You know, yeah. which is weird. Yeah, there's sometimes people can be too talented where things come too easy. It doesn't mean anything. Yeah, there's a thing like you know what you were talking about earlier about being bullied. Like maybe if we get rid of bullying, we're going to get rid of a certain amount of success too. I mean, it's not like I don't, I don't want anybody to hurt their feelings, but I understand that there's something that comes out of that, right? Well, there's something that comes out of it being really hard for you to do. That when yeah, you figure out I how agree. to do it, you've developed this indomitable spirit because you've managed to make your way through the hardest levels of the game to get to the top. It's not like you were just faster than everybody. Yeah. You have bigger muscles and you're, you're fucking heads thicker or something yeah i mean I, yeah you can't be like pro bullying because that's weird but right. but there is something to it because like real life just bullies you anyway there's something to adversity like you sure. have to be able to like like when people like whenever someone says like what's your advice for like you know doing this like being in show business or something i go if being told by complete strangers that you suck all day long does not bother you in any way you know then maybe it's the business for you, <laughs> you know. Be but maybe it's not because it, I think it bothers everybody who wants to do. But there's well. a difference between bothering, like ah, oh, that's a drag, or like I quit, yeah. right? Because right, there's always right, this right. is funny. Whenever someone comes to me and they say, like, "Hey, I wrote this short story. Be brutally honest. I mean, brutally honest." That person's like secretly saying, "Please say something nice about of this." Of course, <laughs> yeah. Come watch my show and be brutally honest. Brutally honest, you're hideous to look at and you're the least talented person I've ever seen in my life. That's such a, re a, a request. Like I've had people ask me to read their scripts. I'm like, hey, bro, you're asking me for an hour and a half of my time. Yeah. I don't even know you. Yeah. Do you know how <laughs> valuable an hour and a half is? I have children and a, three jobs and a lot of hobbies. I don't have an hour and a half to watch a movie. I don't even want to read a script when my agent sends it over. I don't mm. want to read yours. I but mean, they it's, think it's a that lot of time suck. If I can just get this Rob Zombie, if I could just get this Rob Zombie, he can make it. <laughs> then it'll all work out. Uh, it's so funny. The people that always make it never talk about themselves. No. People that can't tell you about their great idea. It's It'll very never rare. not be an idea. It's very rare that that idea is actually great. Yeah. Yeah. It's like <laughs> there's certain qualities that someone has to have to, to make something that's truly exceptional. And very rarely do they want to tell you that it's truly exceptional. Yeah. I mean, it's weird. Like, maybe it's the insecurity thing that you don't want to tell anybody what you do because you don't ever think it's good enough as opposed to people that are not good enough and they always want to tell you about themselves. But. Right. Yeah, that's a problem. <laughs> 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 the wrong people are talking about themselves well it's like it's human psychology but i think the thing about like i was saying about richard jenny would say that looking at shitty comics is what inspires people to do comedy 
there, we learn from all of the psychological disasters, all the people that think, like all the guys that think they're better looking than they are. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. And they walk up to a girl and the girl's like, what the fuck are you talking about? Get out of here. Like there's something, there's something to be learned from that. Like, you know, I had a friend growing up that would swing at every pitch. This guy would go up to every girl and he didn't, he wasn't a particularly good looking guy. He wasn't smart. He wasn't funny. He, but he was bold. Yeah. Was, and, you know, he, and I would learn from him. Like, girls would be angry at him. <laughs> like, angry that he had the balls to ask them out. And then they probably would go, right? Because they're like, very well, few. They, he got <laughs> Very few. So his strategy just didn't work. It didn't work at all. <laughs> I He'd thought that was, find okay. girls with something wrong with them. Like, there's something wrong with it. They have a screw loose. <laughs> <laughs> I thought the end of that story was going to be his boldness paid off. No. No, he's just no. dating No, he became an alcoholic. His fucking life is a disaster. You know, I, I've lost touch with him 15, 20 years That's ago. That's funny. He's out of his fucking mind. But I remember when we were kids, I'd be like, Jesus Christ. Because uh, one of the things about getting the show business that helped me is I was always super insecure to talk to girls. But then when you, when you would, I would do stand-up, you would do work at clubs and you'd be the guy on stage making people laugh. Like they wanted to talk to you. Like you yeah. actually want to talk to yeah. me. This is crazy. You know, I couldn't believe it. That's yeah, weird. That guy would just fucking anybody like, look at that hot bartender. <laughs> I'm in, I'm going. He would like, every flight attendant yeah. on this flight. <laughs> <laughs> he would just buy cocktails and take chances and ask for phone numbers. There's, but you can learn from people that fuck everything up. <laughs> yeah, you can. You learn from everything, man. But I have this theory that nobody can learn from other people's mistakes. Really? It's it's the maybe it's just the way you think and I think, but it's the rare person who learns from other people's mistakes. Yeah, it's rare, but it's possible. Because I always think like heroin. Right. It, <laughs> didn't Lou Reed finish that one for everybody? We're still going to give it a go because it's different when you do heroin or just anything. I mean, I never know anyone that learns from anyone's mistakes because you can even if you're in the business and you go look. Here's my piece. Don't spend that money on that because that's the only you're going to see. Put it away. Do this because that's an advance. That's not coming every month. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then, you know, two minutes later, they're broke. Right. You know, it's like, I, I don't give people advice because they don't want to hear it. I don't care. Be the broke. The people I don't who care. want, who, who really want advice and they're going to use it, that's like one out of a hundred. But they do exist. Yeah, but it's rare. Yeah. And those are the people that are smart and they're like, aha. Yeah. I try to learn as much as I can from other people's mistakes, but they don't feel as bad as they feel to those people. <laughs> <laughs> that's part of the problem is like mistakes well, have to true hurt. Too. Yeah. They have to fucking hurt, man. Like bombing. Like bombing on stage is like sucking a thousand dicks in front of your mother. <laughs> it hurts so bad that you learn oh. and you're like, okay, I am going to figure this out. I'm never having that happen again. I got I to gotta get better. That must be so bad. Oh, I mean, I can rough. relate to it because, you know, I've done a different sort of bombing in front of people on stage. You but know? you can't really learn from other people bombing. I think you kind of, that's one of those things you kind of got to do yourself. How long does it take, because I'm always fascinated by how long do you feel it takes, I mean, this is not really a question I guess you can answer, but till you find your voice and you go, okay, this is me. I'm this guy. I'm not, I'm not Richard mm. Pryor. I'm not Jerry Seinfeld. Like, it depends on I mean, how some much people time maybe you, never find it, I right. guess, but um. a lot of people never find it. There's impossible comics. Whereas like you, you see them and you go, Oh my God, this poor bastard. He's <laughs> trying to do something that he's never going to be able yeah. to do. 
There's people that just, they're never going to be able to do it for whatever reason, whatever, whatever psychological ingredients that they have. It's not enough to make chocolate cake. Like you don't have any eggs. You don't have any flour. Yeah. Bro, you're fucked. Yeah. I, I know. Yeah. But then there's other people that their ego protects them where they, they, they believe that they did well when they didn't do well. They're delusional. And that's the worst thing because they, they're trying to protect themselves from the bad feeling. But they don't understand the bad feeling is your friend because that's it sucks hard. But yeah, that's the fucking medicine that that's, that's <laughs> yeah. you take that medicine. You got to go, OK, OK, OK. What did I do wrong? <laughs> this is what I did wrong. I got to not do that again. And you got to put more time and focus and effort. It's really dependent almost entirely on how much you do that objectively and your focus, like how, how you can look at it. Some people just don't ever want to, no matter what they're doing, whether they're painting or making comic books, they don't want to ever look at it the way other people look at it. They want to think that everything they do is amazing, you know? Mm -hmm. Like That's I, true. My kids will show me something, and sometimes it'll be funny. Like, you know, my daughter will make something on an iPad. Sometimes it'll be funny. And sometimes it's like, look, you got to edit this. There's too much <laughs> shit going on here. This is boring. <laughs> but they think it's great. Why? Because she's fucking nine, okay? But when you're 28... And you think everything you do is amazing. It's like, okay. But do you think that's worse now because of things like Instagram? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Where everybody yeah. puts up anything and mm -hmm. you want to go, you look like an idiot. But yeah. their friend's like, you are so hot. Or something. You know, like everyone's can, they can feed their delusions. That's, that's certainly. But you also could take the sting of criticism and you get it from way more people yeah, than you ever have before. <laughs> like if you're someone who puts something up on Instagram and you think it's funny and then the people come at you hard, like, whoa. <laughs> like you might, you know, if you're a comic and you've been doing stand-up for five years, you're never going to work in front of, uh, not in normal circumstances, you're yeah. never going to work in front of 5,000 people. But you might get 5,000 people saying you suck if you put something up on Instagram. That's true. You know? Yeah, I mean, you can tell. When, I mean, I'm sure you can tell when somebody's funny almost instantly. You can tell, but some people surprise you. Like some people in the beginning, like, wow, this guy's got it rough. But then one day, they it just clicks, and they just keep working at it. And But it's a matter of whether or not they're willing to put the building blocks in the right place and whether or not they're going to admit that the structure that they have currently is not viable. Right. And some people aren't, but some people are. It's like it doesn't – and also it's – it's just like movies, right? It's like everybody's got a different style. You know, your films are your kind of films, whereas, like, there's other people that are doing, like, these really simple, sweet, you know, chick flicks, and that's for them. That's what they like, and there's people that find that, and they think it's amazing. It's so good. It's like you've got to find whatever the fuck it is that you do that you would like to see and yeah because that's, that's hot. hot that's the only way you can judge it yeah i mean i do what i do because that's what i like so when i'm doing it, i go okay but if i was trying to do something else that i didn't get i might go well what do i judge it against like what you're telling me is good then i'm lost well you'd be like the executive asking you to get howard stern in the movie like they yeah. don't know why they want him in and, the movie they just know he's famous like oh he's a right. movie he just came <laughs> yeah. out get him let's get howard and that's what happened when when i was doing the halloween movies a lot because they'd weigh in so often that it can start messing with you because right. you don't know which end is up because you're like, yeah. you just want to go jesus christ can i just fucking focus for five seconds before you send her another 18 pages of weird notes <laughs> 
<laughs> then it was fucking with me. And you really don't know which end is oh, up anymore. God, I've been there. I've never been there for a film, but I've been there on TV shows. It's a drag. It's, it's very confusing because yeah. you don't know anymore because you're so spun out from too much information. Because most of the, I find most of the time, and that's why I'll defend like, like a filmmaker like Ed Wood and why people still talk about Plan 9 from Outer Space. Because, yes, technically it's inept. In the, but there's something so specific about this guy's bizarro vision that you're still talking about it. And that someone like Tim Burton makes a movie about it. Whereas yeah. there's a million far superior made films from back then that nobody gives a shit about. It's just like there's something about keeping that weird bizarro vision alive and not having the committee ruin it. Yeah, if enough people know that it's going to be an Edward movie, they're going to go see it. There's enough people that find out about it. They're like, yeah, this guy's just weird shit, man. Yeah, and Let's like, go see his weird fucking How did movie. he make a movie more entertaining in six days with like $300 than you made with $200 million? <laughs> well, especially in the, ta- the after the, test, the taste of time, because if you look yeah. back at it now, I mean, people will gather around and watch it, especially after the Johnny Depp movie. Yeah. Because when Johnny Depp was a, such a weird Ed <laughs> so Wood. So great in that. So great. <laughs> such a fucking strange that's character like the greatest. for him. I, I think Ed Wood and like young Frank Frankenstein at two times were like that's like the perfect comedy. Yeah. They're just such perfect films. Ed Wood is so weird. That the the Johnny Depp version of him is like, <laughs> what kind of character are you? I know. Yeah. I remember um right when it came out, no, it was right it was right when Martin Landau got nominated for an Oscar. I ran into him at a newsstand and I couldn't I never go up to people because I don't want to bother anybody, but I couldn't resist. And it was like one of those cases where he was so nice. That of like, oh my god, I, you know, which was great, but he was great in that movie, and he seemed too. so shocked that like some young weird dude was like so excited to see meet Martin Landau because you know he's pretty old. And, yeah, that's <laughs> cool when a movie like that sort of reignites people's appreciation for someone. Because I always he's liked always him. Been great. Yeah, I mean, because yeah. I, I was like a Space nineteen ninety nine dork and stuff back in the day. Is there ever a guy that you like you you are such a big fan of as an actor that you would kind of try to like make a movie around them? <sighs> Probably. I mean, the, the, the sad part is so many of the people that I love are gone. Mm. You know, like I've tried to put a lot of people I really loved in all my movies, a lot of like just weird character actors from the 70s that you'd see in like Clint Eastwood movies and stuff. But like Jeffrey Lewis, you know, who's in like, you know, his sidekick in every which way but loose and is in High oh, Plains yeah. Drifter. You know, Juliet Lewis's dad, Jeffrey Lewis. Oh, yeah. And he was like the greatest. I worked with him twice. And he would, he would, he told me the funniest story once. He goes, this is what I learned from, I can't imitate him, but this is what I learned from working with Clint. Whenever I was in a scene with Clint, I'd make sure I put my hand on his shoulder. That way I knew he couldn't cut me out of the scene. Ah! <laughs> he had all kinds of, but he was, he was an amazing guy. I remember when we were, I did this animated movie with Tom Papa called The Haunted World of El Super Beast and Jeffrey Lewis was in it. He had just come from boxing. At that point, he was in his 70s, but he was like little, but he was like, he had that Eastwood body where he's still like, ripped you know clint eastwood you don't think of him as like but then he has that charles bronson body back then where he was like, boxing in the 70s yeah and he wow. came from and he was like don't be fooled i can still kick your ass <laughs> i was like um yeah i'm sure you can okay man relax <laughs> he's a hilarious guy you know the movie that i fucking love that it hardly gets uh, talked about anymore is bad lieutenant yeah harvey keitel you don't hear from harvey keitel anymore for whatever reason well i think is he oh, no maybe is he in the new thing the irishman the Scorsese thing? I don't know. He I seems like he, he should be. That fucking guy has depth. He's amazing. When he gets, there's scenes in movies when he gets angry, you're like, Jesus Christ. 
Like this, this is real. Like he's he's hit this weird place where he might murder the person he's in the film with. <laughs> I know he's. I always wonder what this. I've heard different weird stories of why because he was in Eyes Wide Shut, right? And Kubrick filmed him for a long time and then replaced him with Sidney Pollack. Why? I don't know, but I would always hear these different weird like that weird that there was weird shit that he did, and I don't know if any of it's true, so I don't want to repeat it. But I always wonder because he's so great. Yeah. But to shoot for six weeks or two months and then be replaced it was such a weird thing well he's his scenes there's something about him like like pulp fiction he's so authentic like you believe he's the cleaner you know like he's, he's so the wolf. great as like sport in like uh you know taxi driver yes like, i think that might be the first thing i saw him in so i was he just seems so authentically sleazy i used to have a um, bad lieutenant poster <laughs> what the fuck happened to it? But somewhere along my travels, moving from place to place, I lost it. But I remember he was amazing. That fucking movie was so crazy because it was like a bad cop. Like it was a, a movie <laughs> really about a bad cop, really <laughs> bad cop, like over the top bad, but probably fairly realistic. Probably, unfortunately. Did you, did you ever see the documentary The Seven Five? No. It's a great documentary about corrupt cops in New York. Oh, really? Yeah. And uh, Michael Dowd, who oh, was uh, one of the guys who was one of those corrupt cops who wound up going to jail, and now he's out. And you know, I had him on the podcast, and we talked oh, really? about it. And the po- It's fucking, all of it is true, all of it's documented, and all of it's insane. What year was that all happening? Was that like- I want to say it's the 70s, right? What year was- I always um, assume- Corruption happened in the seventies. A lot of <laughs> it. it. Seems like, like he it. was showing up at the precinct with a fucking Corvette. Like, and everybody's like, "What is going on here, man?" They, I mean, they were knocking over eighties and nineties. Oh, actually. was. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Mm, okay. I just assumed it was Serpico time period. Yeah, but he's out now, man. And uh, it's um, it's just one of those stories that's so fucking crazy. Just you know, knocking yeah. over drug hits out on him, and they were putting hits on other people. It's like it's like woof. It's it's just maniacal. Was that in New York? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It was like the Wild but West. He, he, but he talks about like first day on the job being exposed to corruption. Like they threw some guy out of a fucking balcony <laughs> and he's like, you know, like like this guy jumped, right? And he's like, oh, okay. I think so. Yeah, I forget what the exact story was, but some ridiculous <laughs> shit like that where they were, he was, I mean, it's like, it was corrupt long before he got there. Yeah. He just could have sort of stepped into the, the, the mess of it. You know, it's, like what you're talking about, like your early days in New York City, like seeing that guy get beat to death by a cop, like that was kind of how police had total autonomy. They, I mean, they, they had so much power and authority back then. Yeah, it was crazy. I remember another incident. This was right before I left. That I, st- I think I started talking about this, but I didn't finish. It was like they had Tompkins Square Park, and they were trying to – that's when it was that area was getting gentrified. That was the big word. And there was like kind of a riot. There was all the people protesting the gentrification of the Lower East Side. This was probably like, I don't know, fuck, I forget, maybe early 90s, late 80s. And the cops showed up on horseback. And I was, I was, I had just walked out to go to the deli. I didn't even know this was happening. I just walked right into the middle of like, oh, what's going on here? And um, then the cops just started racing through the crowd and I just started running. And I saw a friend of mine. He he, he he died now, but he was the singer of this punk rock band, Reagan Youth. And I saw this cop just jump on him and start pounding on him so bad. He had really long dreadlocks. The next time I saw him, his head was shaved and it was all stitched up because he just had so much damage to his head. He had been in the, like a coma or something. Oh. And then it was a big scandal. You could probably find this easily because the cops all put black tape on their badge numbers. 
so that no one could tell who was who while they did all this shit. Ooh. And it was like on the front cover of the New York Post, a picture of like a, I think the post, a badge with the black tape. Oof. That shit was wild back then. See if you can find it. Well, the, <laughs> the Chicago elections and uh, the riots uh, during the 1960s yeah. was uh, like a turning point in Hunter S. Thompson's life because he was there and he watched these cops just beat the fuck out of people. And he said that he saw w far worse beatings by the Chicago yeah. police than he ever saw for the Hells Angels. Because, you know, his first book was yeah, the, the Hells, Hells Angels. Angels book. So he was around those guys for a year watching them get into biker brawls and shit. He's like, this fucking paled. It paled. Crazy. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, but uh, it's crazy too. But sometimes I, being a cop must be a crazy job. Horrific. Because I can't imagine. I mean, it doesn't justify any of the stuff we're talking about, but I can't imagine how you couldn't go crazy in that job with right. what you see every day and what you... Most of them, I think, have PTSD, and yeah. they don't. It does. It's not addressed. Most people have disdain for them. Almost everybody they meet's a liar. Yeah. Because you meet, you meet a guy like oh, I didn't know how fast I was going. Oh, this is my <laughs> house. Oh, I just can't find my keys. Like everyone's lying to you, and you're the enemy. You are a professional enemy, and you wear an enemy outfit. Yeah. Right. For all these criminals, That's you're the true. enemy. It's a terrible way to live. And yeah, we need them badly. Right. It's and, and it's I don't it's I don't know. You can't win on that job. I don't think. No. <laughs> no, you can't. And it's, and people don't, you don't get paid enough. People don't respect you. They don't appreciate you. You know, I. They I, don't want you around no. until they want you around. Yes. And then you're not there fast enough. Exactly. And then you <laughs> suck. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, and cop movies, that's what's crazy is like cop movies, people love. People love cop movies and the cops are the good guys. Yeah. It's so strange. <laughs> you know? <laughs> But like their interactions with humans in real life, like, boy, if people treated them the way they think about them in the movies, it would be a wonderful time to be a cop. It's weird, though, because I remember that time period in New York, like, so strange. Like, I have a different relationship now when I see cops, but uh, but as a, as like a bum kid at 19, like, I remember walking down the street and a cop would cruise alongside, roll down the window, and they'd start taunting me, saying shit. Like, mm. you know, because- Bullies. Like, and they're like, cops. They, but they're yeah. just like waiting for you to say something back. Right. And it, I was like, wow, this is weird. You know, I was just walking down the street. I wasn't, you know, even jaywalking down the street. Now, whenever a cop comes up to me, I'm like, oh no, what's happening? He'd be like, dude, I saw you in Slayer. It was fucking awesome. I'm like, that is weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's got to be super strange. Yeah. I mean, they're more accountable now than ever before. I think that's one of the great things about body cameras and cell phones. That, Cops are, you know, you, you just can't rock it that way before. But I don't think they get enough counseling, and I don't think they get enough money, and I don't think there's, I don't think it's a stringent enough screening process. I think there's a lot of people that are, they're, you know, they're powerless twats when they're young, and they want, oh, I just wish everybody's gonna fucking pay <laughs> if I could be a cop, and they they become a cop for all the wrong reasons, and then they're the ones that give the good cops a bad name. And if you think about the amount of interactions that people have with the police, and this is what perspe why perspective is so important, there are fucking 320 million people in this country, and cops have millions and millions and millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of interactions with people yeah. all the time. But how many of those interactions are positive? The vast yeah, right. majority of them are not police brutality. The vast majority of them are not shooting someone and planting a weapon on them or planting drugs on them. Of course. The vast majority of them are cops doing a really hard job and doing their best. But nobody gives a fuck about that. You only care when the cops go bad. You know? And yeah. then, you know, it's just perspective. 
Which, uh, you know, nobody has. No, nobody, <laughs> nobody does. Nobody that's does. too nuanced of a conversation with the world now. Nobody it has is. any perspective on anything. Well, listen, man, I uh, appreciate you coming in here, and your film is out tonight. 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 Yes. Three from Hell. Three from Hell, tonight, and everywhere. Well, somebody will tell me they couldn't find it, but it's trying to be everywhere. Um, so, it, and then when will it be available, like if someone wants to get it off Apple TV or um, I don't know Amazon. exactly. I mean, it's a three-night Fathom event, and then it'll be in theaters here and there, and then it'll be out probably October will be most accessible for people okay i should have brought that information but no worries be, thanks man that'd be professional being here, brother. thanks thank for having me man. man thank you rob zombie ladies and gentlemen that was fun man